0: So, I'm so excited today. I've just finished listening to Vanessa's audiobook, and it has got 5,145 reviews on Amazon in a two-year span, which is absolutely phenomenal. This is off the scale and it's called The Governor. So, you can imagine what Vanessa's career was. We're going to go back over the stories. The link for the book, Is in the description box below this video, as are Vanessa's socials, and a preferred method of contact is through Instagram and Twitter. So huge thank you for coming on, Vanessa. Thank you. Thanks for having me. In this beautiful place as well. And what on earth made you want to join the prison service?
1: Oh gosh, that everybody asks me that, you know. And and I can't say that anything wanted made me want to join the prison service, any one thing. All I can say is that I used to milk cows for an for a living, and um, I did an agricultural uh, degree in um, general agriculture at uh, Cannington College of Agriculture and Horticulture in Somerset. So I milked cows for a while, and then um, I had my own business, um, relief milking. I went round to farmers and did their milking for them, and um, generally worked on many, many different farms. But then, of course, everything like that always comes to an end. You know, there was really no way I was ever going to have my own farm. There was no way that, you know, I was ever going to get any higher than milking a cow. Um, and uh, so I decided, well, there's got to be something, something else I can do. And as luck would have it, as seems to be a lot in my life, um, I went to London for the weekend and whilst there I was on the tube and I was just sort of aimlessly looking at all the posters on the tube. And this one poster was a bit like a, a General Kitchener poster of, you know, your country needs you, but it said, um, your prison service needs you. And it said, um, you too could make a difference. And I thought, well, yeah, I could probably do that job. At least it's it's like a career, something that I could do for a long time. I was 21 years old. Um, I thought, well, I can do that. My mother, of course, when I told her that I was going to join the prison service, had a complete breakdown um, and um, said, why on earth would I want to do a career like that? But um, I persevered and I thought, well, yeah. Maybe I can make a difference to, to somebody, you know. I always thought, well, if I could turn one person's life around, then you know, my whole career was would, would be worth it.
0: So. Which is a noble mission to be on, but at the back of your mind were you anticipating you would be end up with dealing with serial killers like Rose West, Dirty <laughs> Protest did you know the full extent of what you were getting into
1: um no I never thought about you know serial killers murderers rapists uh, it never it never really occurred to me you know I thought you know that there'd be confrontation obviously you know we were we were quite well well schooled in interpersonal skills and and communication with people but I think you know the people like serial killers and Rose West Beverly Alec Hindley, you know, they don't define me and they certainly don't define my career. Um, Yeah, they're a headline. Yeah, I've met them all. I've worked with for quite a long time with Rose West. Um, But, um, you know, I don't I don't look at them as as that was what my career was about. You know, there there are many people in prison, some who shouldn't be there, who have mental health issues, some who there for the grace of God go me and you um and you know in general i just wanted to nothing noble about it i wanted to work with people and i and i was interested in people
0: and we'll get to all that and at the end there's a activism component to this whereby there's a changeover of prison philosophy and vanessa really exposes what's going on and it's not good for the pub the taxpaying public (laughs) all right so You sign up then, you get accepted. What's the training protocol?
1: Okay, so when I joined, um, it has changed now. I mean, I I am talking 1985 is when I finished, when I started the process and it took a whole year from start to finish to get actually boots on and into the the prison. Um, So you go through a medical, you, you went through a maths test and an English test, and then you went through an interview, um, and the interview was quite interesting, actually. Um, at, on the interview, I was told that I was um going to be working at Holloway Prison. Um, don't even bother asking to go anywhere else. Holloway are so short. Sure you're being specifically Holloway recruited. OK, so then. So you walk into Holloway Prison and you find two women in bed together. What would you do? And I kind of like looked around at these three people who were sat on this board, thinking, "How the fuck do I know what what I would do?" So I sort of said, "Well, you know, <laughs> I don't know the rules of the prison at the moment, so I don't know if it's a if it's an acceptable thing or or not. Obviously, I I will do whatever the rules of the prison say." Um. So um, that was that question. <laughs> and then they said to me, "So have you got a boyfriend?" And I went, um not at this moment. No. All oh, right. Have you got a girlfriend? And I went, no, I didn't actually at that time. But even if I had it done, I didn't think it was any of their bleeding business. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, they asked me really specific, sort of almost homophobic questions that, you know, you just wouldn't get away with today. But they asked me this on the interview. Anyways, as, as luck would have it, I passed the interview. And uh, I was given a start date of 12th of May, 1986. So for, I walked into the gates at Holloway Prison to be greeted by a very sort of grim looking um, woman who was clearly in charge of the gate. Uh, said, I'm here. My name's Vanessa Freight, you know, ready to change the world. Um, and uh, I'm here to start my training. Right. Sit over there. Mind your P's and Q's, don't speak to anybody and don't move. I'll get somebody over to you. Well, bloody hell. Okay. So they got their training uh, SO over and uh, she came over, took her sort. There was like suddenly that I was surrounded by other women, and there was like nine of us in total on this course. So we were all taken up to the training department where we were given um if you remember Hilda Hogden, I mean I am going back <laughs> a few years, um, who used to do cleaning and she wore those nylon blue overalls. Well we were given a, a pair of them. And on 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 our lapels, we had um one of those big sort of rectangle stickers um with nipo on it. And it was new entrant prison officer. And we just had to wear these blue overalls over our clothes, and with this big sticker, and walks round the the wings with that. Well, you can imagine <laughs> the cat calls, the name calling, the whistles. You know, as as soon as you walked onto the wing. So that was my introduction to a prison. Um, and uh, so you spent four weeks. Uh, at your establishment and then you went off to the training college my training college there were two at that time one was in wakefield and one was uh newbold, newbold revel in rugby and they said that officers were made at newbold revel and screws were made at wakefield
0: monster mansion
1: yes so uh that's right so um so that's where i went i went up to um newbold revel and um we did a series of, I think I spent about 10, 12 weeks up there. Um, and um, we did a series of, you know, we did a lot of diversity training. We did interpersonal skills training. We did um, PE. We had to be able to run a mile um, to pass our fitness. We had to do like first aid. And again, you had to get so many to to pass. Um, and it was a pass or fail at the end of it. Um, you were taught how to march, and uh, the chief officer said to me one day, he "said uh, Miss Frake, I'd just like to say congratulations because you are the only one in step out of your whole platoon." And I was like, "I thought it was making like it was a compliment, but actually, he meant I was the only one wrong. Oh, everybody else was Oh right. no! Yeah. So uh, yeah. So. Um, yeah, marching was was never really my forte. But it it was quite disciplined at that time. So uh, the men um, officers, um, it was mixed and mixed men and women. But, I mean, the women were probably outnumbered five to one, I should think. There was probably altogether about 150 of us there and maybe 20 of them were women. So the men all did this thing called mufti, which was sort of their riot training. The women weren't allowed to do that. So obviously, you know, it was obviously far too hard for us to be able to do. Okay, so we either had to sit there and watch all the men do all this riot training or we could throw um, like rubber bricks at the men, you know, pretending to be a prisoner. Great. I mean, taught me absolutely bugger all how to deal with a violent woman and i can tell you now that women can be very violent when they want to be often more violent than than a lot of men so uh so we had no training so when like we all passed out and we went back to holloway to start as an officer in our brand new spanking um sort of raf blue uniforms we had no way of dealing with, with women that, that turned violent. And it was basically, you know, just grab what you can and try and, and try and either get away or shove her in a wall or something. It, there was just nothing. Thankfully, um, control and restraint came out about two years later and, um, women were allowed to do that then. But a man was given a stave, which is like a police truncheon. And we were given cubitons, which is about big. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what we were supposed to do with it. You were supposed to, like, if they gripped onto something, you were supposed to use it to sort of bend a thumb back or something. Totally useless bit of kit. But, you know, that's how it was then. So, I mean, thankfully, it has
0: changed quite
1: significantly. Did you say you did
0: did did some of your training at Monster Mansion?
1: No, I didn't. There were two two training camps. One was... um, Wakefield and one was um, in rugby so you either went to one or the other I see um, I did go to a, a course at, at Wakefield and I also went and had a look around Wakefield prison at one time I thought oh I might I might want to work there and a friend of mine her father was uh, one of the governors there and she said well I'll sort out a tour around and uh, you can go and have a look around so I went up to Wakefield one weekend and uh This guy took me round and um, it it was just, I couldn't believe it. It was an old like radial prison. So there was a centre in the middle and all the wings were like off in in spurs all the way round. And there was a big bell on the centre. And at lock-up time, some, some, usually the, the P.O., principal officer he would ring this bell out and it would be it was almost like you know um, the the TV the gong guy who <laughs> hits the gong it was a bit like that and this, this sort of echoing and shuddering sort of resounded around these sort of brick walls and um, so he'd hit this bell and literally within I'd say a hundred and probably a hundred seconds every prisoner was behind their door and they were just stood there waiting for the officer to come along and just slam the doors shut as they went round, and the whole jail, probably about a thousand prisoners, was locked up in literally two minutes flat. Wow! I, I never quite understood how they managed it, but they did. Um, for, but went, for for
0: the public who are not familiar, why is it called Monster Mansion?
1: Oh, uh, because a lot of a lot of um, like the Black Panther was there. Um, I bumped, literally bumped into Colin Ireland when he was there. I was in their canteen and uh, literally bumped into him, turned round and just like kept looking up and up. And he had the most unreal sort of pink staring eyes. Um,
0: What had he done just for the viewers? um,
1: Colin Ireland was the um, gay killer. Um, I, I, I do believe he didn't, he go around, um, killing gay men in, in uh in Soho and sort of inviting them round and
0: And he would get them in compromising S and M positions. Yes, that's he? right, yeah, yeah. That's
1: it. Yeah. So uh he he um he he was very strange. But I I, I presume it's called Monster Mansion because of all the the very sort of um well known sex offenders, rapists, murderers that uh that are housed there. Um, you know, quite a few have been housed there. And are still there. Um, in particular, Charlie Brunson is still there. They actually built a cell in Wakefield for Charlie Brunson, um, but uh, it's a it's like a glass cell, um, but it's not glass. I'll just hasten to add before anybody thinks the prison service is completely lost. But yeah, I mean it's it's um, it, it does have some very um, horrendous characters there.
0: So you finish your training. And now you're applying this training that wasn't so good. Yeah. What were your challenges?
1: Um I think um I think the training for the prison service can prepare you for every anything. Um but can prepare you for nothing. You know, they 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 never really explained to us about self-harm about suicides, you know, um, women are prolific self-harmers. I mean, prolific, you know. we I've seen them try and pull their eyes out. I've seen them. Um, we had one prisoner who I ended up taking out to hospital, literally took a chunk out of her wrist um, so you could see her wrist bone and, and spat the, the piece of flesh out onto the floor. Um, We had one prisoner um, who unfortunately has passed away now, who um, was called Karen, who um, she her claim to fame was that she hated prisoners um, and she'd try anything to try and kill them. She did a stint in Broadmoor, but tried to kill a, a, a patient in there and so was moved back to Holloway to prison. And uh, Karen was a prolific self-harmer. And when I say prolific, I mean, there wasn't an inch on her body that didn't have a scar from cutting or um, her, her, her main thing was she had um, this, this sort of when she was feeling um, very disturbed, she had this thing where she'd stick a biro down in the vein in her leg and refuse all treatment. Until it got so bad and it smelt so sort of gangrenous and infected that we'd sort of say to a Karen, Are you sure you don't want to like go out to hospital now? And in the end, she'd kind of turn around and said, um, when she'd had enough, she'd say, okay, miss, I'm ready to, to, to get treatment now. But that was her thing that, you know, so I'm talking like serious prolific. Um, but nobody prepares you for that. You know, nobody prepares you for that sort of amount of mental disturbing women um, that, you know, you had to wonder, why are these people in prison?
0: Did you remember the first time you you encountered self-harm and how you reacted and adapted?
1: Um, The first time um, I encountered self-harm was... um, We had a a – women at that time were given these like nylon 90s and we had a a prisoner who set fire to herself. Um, And, of course, those nylon 90s weren't fire retardant. There was nothing like that. I'd been in the job probably six, eight months, something like that. Um, And she was on my wing and it was the hospital wing. It wasn't the the mental health hospital wing. It was just the hospital wing Um, because she was an avid drug, drug addict and um she'd set fire to herself suddenly we saw smoke, and we heard like other women screaming, "Miss Miss Rose set herself on fire, she set herself on fire and this woman had um set fire to her herself, but also set fire to herself whilst wearing this nighty and this this nighty just literally like stuck to her. Um And, like the nurses were like peeling it off, but oh. trying not to take any skin off. It was horrendous. I mean she had dreadful scars on her legs where it had just literally stuck to her um but i've seen, I've seen them you know um nobody prepares you for that for the smell of like burning skin. I mean, so what was
0: going through your head when you encountered this for the first time
1: <laughs> in all fairness, Sean honestly. Nothing, because your adrenaline button clicks in and all you want to do is A, put out the fire, B, make sure she's all right and C, make sure your colleagues are all right. Everything happens so almost like so quickly, but yet so slowly because you're you're in such a heightened state. You don't have time to sit there and think, oh, God, that's dreadful. You know, it's it just happens almost automatically. And then afterwards, of course, when you're coming down from the adrenaline rush, I can remember writing my first statement, because, of course, obviously, you know, something like that. There's a lot of paperwork to do. And I was literally like this, trying to hold my hand as I was like writing this statement. And I can remember this this principal officer coming up to me and saying, don't worry about shaking. It's when you don't shake that you need to worry. And I always remember her saying that that, you know, it's okay. It was almost like her way of saying it's okay not to be okay without actually saying it. Because, of course, at that time, there was no sort of occupational health. There was no sort of counselling for staff. It was, you all right, Vanessa? Yes, yes, miss, I'm fine, thank you. Right, get on, go and take a cleaning party out, you know, and 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 off you go.
0: Yeah, I think, and that's an early example story there, but what shines throughout your book is, how you stay cool in all situations, and you've got a method- methodology that you stick to, <laughs> and that gets you through everything. And you manage to catch some people in some doing some things that we'll get to later on as well, fr- through through your adherence to this, <laughs> your principles. Okay, so had any prisoners uh, took a swing for you or anything in your in your first year or so?
1: Um, my first year, uh, well, the, literally probably the first month. Uh, we had a prisoner who attacked um my s o with a broom Ooh. um and um while she was sat behind her desk, she just came roaring into the office with this like broom to and so i i um I jumped on her and as I jumped on her, she kind of swung round and like elbowed me in the face, but i mean that was that was literally my first month um but I mean I've had I've had slaps. I've had black eyes. I've had a a broken, I I can't remember what the bone is there. There's a little bone that you can break there. Um, I've been potted um, at Wormwood Scrubs where that, for anybody who who doesn't know, who'd like to know, um, being potted is when a prisoner will fill up some sort of vessel, usually like a, a squash bottle or something with feces urine and leave it for a couple of days shake it all up and then as somebody would press the alarm bell and poor unsuspecting me went running along to answer the alarm bell and uh this prisoner because i'd upset him earlier in the in the day had decided to or in the week had decided to throw this stuff over me Very unpleasant experience.
0: Yeah, I was grimacing when I got to that part of the book. Mm. How long were you in Holloway for then?
1: Um, I did, let me think now, 86 to 2002. So
0: 16 years. Wow, I spoke at Holloway, but it was after you'd been there. I spoke to the... Regular population and I spoke to the foreign population. Oh, did you? Yeah.
1: What did you think? of Really
0: following? enjoyed it. I spoke at Send as well.
1: Oh yes, yeah, Send. Send yeah.
0: was probably one of my favourite talks ever because the women had actually read my book, um, and knew about my relationships. Yeah. In America, and they were asking me questions like, "God, you've done your bloody research," but they were laughing their heads off. <laughs> it was great. Yeah,
1: yeah. well done you. Yeah. That's that's very brave <laughs> to a load of women. I can I can tell you now, but um, yeah, I mean. Holloway was you know it closed down in uh, 2016 it's been pulled down now um so it's gonna be a a new housing estate but I think that they've done something the the builders are actually building sort of like a women's center there in in memory of the of the old jail I think
0: was it did it ever have men in Holloway?
1: Um, Holloway was originally the old Holloway was originally built for men, oh. but because of um, the suffragette movement, and suddenly all these women were being nicked. Um, they suddenly found themselves with three hundred women, um, so they put them in Holloway prison, and that's when it became a, a female jail. I didn't
0: know that, yeah, right. So in those very early years, then in Holloway, what were your biggest challenges?
1: Um, I think I found, I think probably finding my um my own way of dealing with things and dealing with prisoners. I think everybody has to find their level. You know, I i i i, I won't say um I found it difficult, but I think you have to realise that talking at somebody is much different to talking to somebody. Um, and, you know, coming along like some pompous little twit, um, expecting, you know, some hardened criminal like, um, Linda Calvey, you know, Black Widow. She oh, was had my, it, we've added
0: Linda on the podcast. Have uh, yeah, yeah. Linda's brilliant. Yeah. Linda
1: was my wing cleaner on, uh, at Holloway. Oh, wow. Um, so, um, you know, expecting, you know, Linda Calvey. To, uh, you know, listen to you. You know, you can't talk at somebody like that. You've got to talk to them and you've got to build up a professional relationship with them. So I think learning that, but that's all, that's all. You can't be taught that you have to learn that. And sometimes like learning that can be very difficult. Um, because you have fails along the way, you know, you're always going to get prisoners that you can't get along with, you know, that, that you rub each other up the the wrong way. You're always going to get that.
0: What was the first one that happened with you?
1: Oh gosh. Um, that would probably be a woman called Pauline Thomas, who um, <laughs> literally used to, she was, um, she ended up going to Broadmoor, actually. She was a very violent woman. And, um, I don't know what it was. She just used to see me and have this complete sort of almost like... um utter breakdown that she wanted to get to me and I can remember standing um, in the psychiatric wing one lunchtime and just literally out of the corner of my eye I saw this silver thing winging its way towards me and I literally stepped back and it literally just went past my head and it was um, we used to have then I mean they don't anymore but we used to have like metal water jugs and uh, that's what it was but she just she just had issues with me i don't know why pauline just was i mean she she did have mental health issues um and she certainly had one of them issues with me so yeah that's probably the the first one but you know you just have to be aware of that and uh,
0: did you attempt to diffuse that with her was it
1: no no she she was one of those that you just couldn't couldn't get through to um you know there are people like that you know not everybody wants to be you know listen to you waffling on about you know we should you know we have to get on and all this sort of thing some sometimes the less said the better
0: as you were establishing yourself in those early years did you notice a hierarchy amongst the female prisoners
1: Oh, yeah. I think I think whether it's male or female, there is always a hierarchy. You know, child killers, child molesters, um, anybody like that is seen at the bottom of the pile, whether you're in a male jail or a female jail. Um, There are always those um, who, you know, like Linda Calvey, the black widow. um, Now, she was quite well thought of because. Linda was what I used to call like an old con. She was very wise in, um, and street wise and knew the systems in and out. Knew she'd be, she was like I would be if I was in jail. You know, I'd be, you know, absolutely polite, get myself a decent job. Um, but I'd know exactly what was going on and who was who and who to look out for and who to take. Get, needed taken care of and et cetera, et cetera. And Linda was like that. And that's how I would be if I was in prison, I think.
0: So did you see the child killers get picked on by the other prisoners then?
1: Um, well, in the main, we we kept them a- apart. We They never really mixed um, with um, the general population. You, you know, a uh, like... Um, the most recent one, Lucy Levy or whatever her name is, Might you be. know, she she won't be in the general population for a long time to come. Um, there will be a point, I expect, that they will try and probably try and introduce uh, into the general population. But that will be a long time ahead. Um, but um, I can remember. um we used to have these like um, magistrates coming round on on tours, and um, at that time I was working on the what's called the VP unit, which is like vulnerable prisoners. So they were women who had done horrendous things, whether part of a paedophile ring or um, held their kids down while while others raped them or any murdered children, anything like that. They went to the VP wing. And um, we had this tour of magistrates coming round because they used to come round every so often as part of their magistrates' training. And um, one of them said to me, How can you work on a unit like this? And I said, Well, you know, it's not my job to judge these people. These people have been judged, judged by their peers, judged by uh, society. Put in prison—that is their punishment. There, their loss of freedom is the punishment. My job is to make sure, sure that they're safe, that they get everything that they're entitled to, and I've always maintained that throughout my career. I don't—you know—there are times when you do have to look at, at people's um, offences and write reports on them and things like that. Um, but if you let yourself become so. Um, consumed by their offences you couldn't you couldn't do the job um, and i think i learned that very quickly um, when i started in the prison service that you know i learned how to compartmentalize
0: a lot of things so in the beginning then who were the most high profile prisoners you encountered
1: uh, in the beginning um let me think we well we had um, quite a lot of the ira then um we had when um I can't remember a s first name, but it was Richardson, whether that was was it Catherine Richardson or something? One of the IRA members who was released after wrongly being I think it was either the Guildford four or the Birmingham Six, one of one of those we had uh we had Rosheen McCarthy, who was um sentenced to life um for plotting to kill or for actually killing somebody. I can't remember who it was she killed. Uh, we had, so they were, we had quite a lot of high profile IRA people in the beginning when, you know, I, I was at, at uh, in my, in my quarter, in my flat. And uh, I heard the Highgate bomb go off. You know, the IRA was very, was very um, prolific at that time. So it's, Obviously, a prison reflects what, what goes on outside the walls. So the IRA were quite prolific. So we, we had a, um, quite a few IRA prisoners. What we used to do was hire a wing of um, at Brixton uh, from Brixton prison and put most of the IRA prisoners in there and man that f- with female staff. I, I did a,
0: a couple of weeks there once. Were they treated differently because they were considered like a military force?
1: um no but they behaved differently i mean they wouldn't they wouldn't converse um with you they wouldn't um acknowledge any any sort of um rules or regulations of the of the prison system um, you know they were they were quite difficult to deal with and you like never you know separating people on religion i always thought was you know a bit odd but um you know we we could never like put protestants you know in with Catholics or all the other way around um, and um, they they were they were quite difficult to manage, very knew everything about what the rules and the regulations were and what they could do what they couldn't do what they could get away with what they couldn't get away with probably better than most prison officers to be
0: honest Wow, what about dirty protests? What was your first experience with them
1: now in in Holloway. Women don't usually do dirty protests. I don't know whether that's a female thing or whether that is just, you know, why would you want to do that? But um, so I can't honestly say I remember a dirty protest at Holloway at Wormwood Scrubs, however, (laughs) we had many. Um, And we used all sorts of things to try and so like if you were duty governor, you obviously had to do rounds down the seg. Um, Those sorts of um, those protests for whatever reason. I mean, prisoners did it to be bad. They did it because, you know, they they didn't get their appeal or they just got convicted or, you know, 101 different reasons that they do it for. Um, And every day they're offered a shower. Um, and, um, if they refuse then they stay in the, in the cell. Um, but there is, it is quite a smell. I won't lie. We used to, when, when I was duty governor and we had one on, um, dirty protest down the seg, cause obviously you wouldn't have them on normal location. So for those don't know down the seg segregation unit separated from the general population at a prison. Um, and, um, you always carried a little tub of Vicks and you stuck a big wad up each nostril as you walked onto the segregation unit because there is a smell and a half, I tell you now.
0: Yeah, we interviewed Neil Samworth, ex-prison officer, and there was a bunch of them doing a dirty protest. So he came up with a plan whereby he got, somehow got them out of the cells and put them back not in their own cells yeah so they had to smell each other's poo <laughs> and then they, they quit after that yeah yeah
1: yeah, it's, uh, yeah I mean I can see that that would probably work yes
0: did, did you have any trick like that to do with these things?
1: Um, well no not really I mean we didn't it, thankfully I can't ever remember um, us having that many at a time usually it was it was one at a time for whatever reason.
0: So in Holloway then, um, did you lose any of the female prisoners? Did they take their own <laughs> lives? Or? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think the first time I saw um, uh, somebody who'd, who'd committed suicide, I mean, I was totally unprepared for it. It was an alarm bell. We, we ran into this cell and this um, woman had uh, tied a bra Around her neck and looped it over the uh, radiator, and as as she'd leaned forward, obviously she became asphyxiated. And it doesn't it doesn't take long before the body loses consciousness, and once the body loses consciousness, of course, the weight of the body pulls you forward even more, and and that's how you die. But you know, we had one woman who um, came in on receptions. Um, and when they come onto receptions, um uh, from court, um, they're, first of all, they're given a, um, a rub down search, make sure there's no weapons or anything that could harm either them or, or us on them. And then they're put into a, um, like a dining room, uh, where they have a hot meal, um, and there's a toilet in there, um, that they can use. Anyway, she went into the toilet and, um, she stuffed toilet paper down into her throat. Um, And died, asphyxiated herself. Um, You know, gosh, I mean, saying that, you know, you always hear of the the people who sadly have lost their lives. But I tell you now, on a daily basis, there's a prison officer somewhere that saved somebody's life. Um, And um, that always used to... I, I didn't want to be thanked for it, but but I think sometimes, you know, we forget the good that prison service staff do.
0: Have you got some stories of lives being saved?
1: Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 so many. I mean, I, I've got a funny story, whereas um, my, myself and um, another officer were on um, – we were on what's called lunch patrol. So the main body of staff had gone off for lunch, left us just a skeleton staff, two of us um, on um, on the landing. And um, it was quite a big wing; it had like four spurs off it. It was it was like an admissions wing, anyways. Uh, the wing cleaners, <laughs> Linda Calvey being one, um, were were out um, over lunch. We we never we never locked them up. And, um, so they were just mooching around the wing and then one of them shouted, miss, miss, somebody's trying to top themselves. Anyways, myself and this other officer legged it round, uh, this corner to this cell, which happened to be like literally the furthest from the office. Um, so we got there, so we were both like puffing and red in the face. Anyways, she was in front of me. So she undid the door burst in and there of course was this woman hanging.
0: Thanks for watching our podcast. This is a word from our sponsor, Shopify. I feel like I'm missing out because everyone is starting a side hustle or their own business these days. And you know what they're hearing a lot? <coughs> That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Are you selling books or events like us? Shopify simplifies selling online and in-person so you can successfully grow your business. Shopify covers all your sales channels, from a shopfront ready POS system to its all-in-one e-commerce platform. Shopify even gets you selling across social media marketplaces like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand, without learning new skills in design or coding. And thanks to 24-7 help and with an extensive business course library, Shopify is ready to support your success every step of the way. Look, there's so many options out there to expand your business these days, and what's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. It's time to get serious about selling and get Shopify today. This is possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Sean to take your business to the next level today. shopify.co.uk forward slash Sean, that's the word from our sponsor. Thanks for watching. Link in the description. Back to the podcast.
1: Um,
0: and um,
1: as I came through on with her, I tripped. So as I tripped, I fell on the officer in front of me, who naturally went to grab the nearest thing, which happened to be this woman's legs. And we literally yanked, both, all three of us fell on the floor um, so there was me, another officer and this poor woman who, who at that stage, I mean, she was fine. Thank God she was fine. It's it's not funny that she tried to, that she felt emotional enough um, to try and top herself. But the whole, it was a bit Keystone Coppish, I always thought, you know, how we'd burst in and literally probably hurt this woman like by dragging her. But thankfully, it wasn't a, a great sort of knot or something that she'd done. And um, you know, it's it just snapped and she was fine.
0: How did that feel afterwards to think you've saved someone's um, life? Um I don't
1: I never really thought about it. It never it never I I think I I do think that the prison service at that time, you you almost became desensitized to it all. Um, because, you know, there were there were lots of times that um, you know, We'd go in and check on on prisoners who who possibly might have um, tried to top themselves um, and then turn around and fought you as you'd gone into their cell. You know, they, or, or there was, you know, I don't know. It just it just didn't almost seem real. If it, it, I never went home and thought, oh, my God, I've just saved somebody's life today. It just never, never occurred to me to think
0: like that. Yeah, because at the end of the book it catches up with you, doesn't it? Because yeah, you...
1: yeah, I think it does, and I think you know, writing the book brought a lot of that that stuff out. And I think once you once you stop all that, and your brain has time to sort of mash it all together and spit it all out, and and actually this happened or that happened, you know, I can I can remember at Scrubs we had um, a prisoner. Um, it was in the seg unit. It was a weekend. I think it was a Sunday. And uh, this guy was serving nine years for rape. He wasn't a nice man at all. He was a horrible prisoner. He, you know, he he just was had an utter contempt for everybody. Anyways, this one sat Sunday. Um, I got this emergency over the over the radio that we had a code one prisoner tried to hang himself uh, down the segregation unit. So I legged it down the seg and. Um, The SEG at Wormwood Scrubs only has two floors. Um, Down on the bottom, there's a couple of cells, but the majority of cells are upstairs, just one flight of stairs. And um, it's only a small unit, so it only held maybe 15 prisoners um, and quite often wasn't full at all. Um, And um, so when I got there, the staff were there, the nursing staff were there doing CPR, And, um, you know, it was pretty clear to all that, you know, this guy was dead. Um, and, um, the nursing staff couldn't, because of the size of the cells, they couldn't get round him every which way to work on him properly. So I said, well, let's all like get him on a sheet, pull him down to down the stairs to in the, in the sort of landing at the bottom where they could have, like much more room they'd called the ambulance the ambulance, um, realizing it was a hanging, had sent um, the air ambulance so at the back of Wormwood scrubs is what is known as Wormwood scrubs. It's a big sort of heath, um, green uh, people walk dogs, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. and that's where the ambulance um, landed, and then the guy, the doctor and two of uh, the nurses came running round the corner to um, the jail. So we had, uh, there was me, there was probably four or five staff, then there was uh, the nursing staff, the duty doctor, um, the two ambulance men who came in the, in the car, then they had uh, the doctor and two of the nurses from the helicopter. So there was a lot of people there, all working on this guy, trying to bring it, revive him. But i mean i'm not not a doctor, but he looked pretty dead to me anyways. Finally, the doctor um who came from the air ambulance called it and said, um you know I think you know he they'd been working on him probably forty five minutes and he he wasn't breathing and if if they hadn't managed to get him back he 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 would have had no quality of life um and um so this doctor called it. And, um, and he sort of checked his time, did this, did that. Um, and then, um, I went and chatted to the staff, took the staff in, into like, um, just a, an office room, um, made sure the staff, the officers there that were there were okay, uh, came back out. Well, there wasn't a bloody soul about, there was just a, a dead body in the middle of the landing the nursing staff had gone the air ambulance guys had gone the ambulance had gone there was literally me and four four officers on this with this dead body in the middle well you know it's all very well talking about one prisoner and the fact that he's dead but i still had another eight or nine prisoners that i had to serve tea to but I couldn't get them out with a dead body. And sometimes in a jail, when when a prisoner dies, you can wait five or six hours for the coroner to come along. So I said to the guys, well, we can't leave this guy here. We're going to have to feed the rest of the wing. Um, let's put him in the like So he was already on the sheet. So myself, I grabbed one corner, another guy grabbed another corner, another guy and another guy, four corners, and... The guy in front of us, he opened the door of the, it was a store cupboard. And so we lifted him up, put him in there, laid him down in this store cupboard. And as we laid him down, his arm kind of went flop like that over my foot. Well, I'll tell you now, that haunted me for about three or four months. I used to wake up in the middle of the night seeing this guy's dead arm flop over my foot. At the time, I'd said to I said to it was a guy called Steve. I said, "Steve, could you just remove his his arm from my foot, please?" And he like picked his arm up and put it back across him, and uh, and we left him there until the until the coroner rocked up, some sort of four or five hours later. Um, but but think nobody can prepare you for that sort of thing, you know. Quite a lot of the time, you have to think on on the hoof, and you know you 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 look at things and in a totally different light and people might think my god they shoved this guy in a in a store cupboard but actually we had other prisoners we had to take care of because you can't focus all on one and just forget about the rest of them you know there could have been another prisoner trying to hang himself or 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 self-harm or whatever so it's 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 a very difficult balance and a very difficult tightrope sometimes
0: People don't understand the context of the environment unless they're in there and the security issues. Yes, yeah. Constant vigilance. So had you anticipated the amount of drugs in prisons?
1: Um, well, at Holloway, probably probably not. Women are not as interested in sort of the smuggling side of drugs as, as men. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, they still did. And they often had help from outside. We used to have... Um, One prisoner whose mother at that time, um, flowers were allowed to be sent in once a week. And she used to send this big bouquet of um, flowers in. But hidden inside the stalks were drugs, usually all wrapped up in long, thin things of cling film. I don't know why she did it, because every Saturday we found it. So we knew it It was happening. And we'd say to the prisoner, tell your mum not to bother because, like, you know, we got the drugs again. And um, but she thought she was helping her daughter. She knew her daughter could not go, get off the drugs. She she was funny. She was a funny prisoner. She was um she was proper what I would call East End. And her name was Maureen. And um I mean, she was she was a, a self-harmer. She was uh, a drug user, a very bad drug user to the point where, you know, she she to, to inject, she had to do between her between her mm. toes because all her veins had collapsed. Mm. Um, and um, I was in Marks and Spencers down the Holloway Road one day and uh, Maureen had been released. And I hear this right across Marks and Spencers lingerie department. Freaky, you old what are you doing in here? And it was Maureen. <laughs> I was like, hi, Maureen, <laughs> just <laughs> doing <laughs> a bit of shopping. You're all right." Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> like, and then that was Maureen. You know, that was a compliment if she called you the, the C word. You know, that was that that was, you know, you were alright if she called you the C word. But I I think, you know, most of Marks and Spencer's just looked horrified. But I mean she, she was probably doing a bit of shoplifting in there for <laughs> for her next fix, I expect. But um you know, <sighs> it it is it is what it is that that is part and parcel of prison you know you, i've i've seen quite a few prisoners outside and they've all been very pleasant and respectful i've never had any issues with with that sort of thing but drugs yeah not so much with women but definitely men
0: we'll get to that so in arizona then all sex is you get disciplinary sanctions for right up mm-hmm. to illegal the female co-defendants told us that some females' life as included had consensual sex with guards. Yeah, some would even get pregnant, and they're not getting released to give the baby to one of the mates who's getting released. Um, was there anything like that that you became aware of?
1: Uh, yes, unfortunately. I mean, I think when when you have a big institution like like the prison service, I think you're always going to get you know bad eggs in the basket. And um whether that be male prison officers with female prisoners or female prison officers with male prisoners, I think, you know, unless they have the training and the support that um that young staff of that age need. You know, I was always taught there's a line. It's clear. There's no gray areas. You're that side. Prisoners are that side. That's it. It's a professional line. You know, these people who do this, you know, it's well, first and foremost, it's an abuse of power, whichever way around it is, because, you know, one has the uniform and the keys and the other is um, has no liberty. So it's a it's a clear abuse of power. Secondly, it puts everybody who works in that environment in a very vulnerable position because. How can you be having an affair with a prisoner of either sex? Um, and do your job correctly, you know, smuggling them in mobile phones, smuggling them in, in drugs. You know, I saw, I saw something in the paper the other day where, um, there's a prison in Wales and over the sort of the last, I think it's two years, there's been 17 incidents of female prison staff having illicit affairs with with male prisoners now i i i i a i don't understand it i don't understand why you you feel the need to to have an affair with a i with a prisoner anyways but um i do blame the lack of training the la- they said they had corruption prevention training well you have that as a matter of course anyways you know that isn't the be all and end all it's it's support it's like having sort of mentors that you can go to because once you go down that slippery sliding slope there's no going back you know um yes it happens and um you know i did everything i could to stop it happening um but you're always going to get bad eggs in every basket. So
0: So what rank did you go in as, and when did you get promoted first?
1: Okay, so I first went in um, as an officer in 1986, um, and at that time you had to do four years before you could apply for promotion. So I went for promotion to an SO in 1990 and became the youngest female SO in the country at that time. Um, I was 26 years old in a couple of days.
0: How did your duties change?
1: Um, well, of course, the further up the ladder you go, the the more removed from day-to-day running. So you're more responsible for management side of things, for rotors, rosters, you know, for uh, paperwork side of things. Um, and I only went for promotion because, you know, we had an SO who I thought was the- useless um, and that's – unfortunately, one of my traits is, you know, I don't think anybody can do the job as well as I can. And I accept that as a criticism uh, of me because, you know, that isn't a good way to be, Um, but it's my personality. Um, And I thought, God, I'm sure I can do a better job than that. And that's why I went for promotion. Um, And then uh, let's see, I was a senior officer for about 11 years for the probably about the rest of my time at Holloway. Um, and then I went to Wormwood Scrubs in 2002, um, transferred there as an SO. Um, and, um, then about, I'd say about two and a half years later, I became a, a principal officer and then it, then it just all, i don't know right place wrong time wrong place right time i don 't know, but I seemed to fly up the ladder so by two thousand and eight i was um a gov I was out of uniform and I was um what they call a governor five um and then eighteen months later I was a governor four and um i didn 't go any higher than that I could have gone on to become a deputy governor but i didn't i didn't want to because my <laughs> mercenary that i am but um my pension um would have been affected um so it it made more sense for me to stay as a governor for and to be honest i was quite happy to be remain at that level
0: so there was a fascinating anecdote about rose west i think the woman sat next to her Um, was a drug mule she, she was, didn't know who she was sat next to. Yeah.
1: We had, um, at that time at Holloway, we had an awful lot of drug mules coming over. And these were, um, usually either Jamaican or, um, African women who have been given maybe a hundred pounds to bring a kilo of heroin or cocaine over to this country. But, you know, customs were well wise to it. Um, And these women would get would get caught. So they had the option whether to um, earn £100, which to them was an awful lot of money, or to um, have threats against their family. So at that time, we had an awful lot of it going on to the point where um, a lot of the women, when they brought them over, swallowed the drugs. Um, and obviously, you know, nature would would uh, take its course and they'd be passed out. But customs at that time um, decided that the prison service would be responsible for gathering these um, sort of little round balls once they'd been passed. And um, so the the prison service initiated this um, thing called a ship patrol and it was a little wing where you'd sit 24 hours a day on a high stool looking at this woman. And inside was this huge, great contraption. And as soon as she went to the toilet, you got off your stool, rushed in, pressed the pedal, and whatever was deposited was in a sealed bag. And we'd take that sealed bag and we'd go to security, and security would send it on to customs. It was a delightful um, role to be... To be get to be getting, and you could either do twelve hours in the day or twelve hours at night, but you literally couldn't take your eyes off these women. Anyways, going back to my story, sorry, I digressed a bit there. So we got an awful lot of these mules. So one of these mules that came over was uh, from Jamaica. Now she was a big Rastafarian woman. Um, she was no problem, none at all. But um, the police had issued an Osman. Um, now, for those of you that don't know, an Osman issued by the police is a threat to life. Um, and it's a very serious threat. It's not one of yours, oh, I'm going to kill you. This is a serious um, threat in organised crime. Because this woman had um, turned Queen's evidence against the gang that um, had hired her to bring these drugs over. So she had a real, uh, there was a threat against her life. So. We were informed that uh of the threat, and then we took the decision uh not me personally but we as in the prison, took the decision to put this woman uh down the segregation unit for her own protection at the same time that this woman was down there Rose west the whole uh fred Fred West was still alive Rose West um was due for trial at Winchester Crown in about three months' time two three months' time but Prior to that, um, while she was awaiting trial at Winchester Crown, Holloway housed Rose West down the segregation unit as well, again, for her protection and for the protection of others. So I was in charge of the SEG at that time. And um, on an evening, we used to get these these two out to sit in front of a on a sofa in front of a TV watching whatever rubbish they wanted to watch for an hour. There were no thing, such things then as um, TVs in cells. Um, and um, so we did this like right, every night about six o'clock. We used to get them out for an hour. Um, if we had the staff, let them make a cup of tea, sit there. Rose would be knitting. We never found out what she was knitting because she just kept knitting. Um, and, um, that was that. And then it came to, I think the Friday before Rose's trial was due to start on the Monday and Rose was transferred, uh, to Winchester jail. They'd, um, blocked off half a wing for her only for the use of her while her trial was going on and, um, off she went and, um, then the, on the, on the, well, I think it was probably the Monday or Tuesday later, after she'd had her first or second court appearance. We were back at Holloway. We'd got the the woman out who had turned QE. Six o'clock at night, let her watch the news, and she sat there, and, of course, it was all about Rose West and what she was charged with and pictures of her being taken from the van through to Winchester Crown Court. And uh, she sat there and she said, that dreadful, dreadful woman, how could she, how could we let her live? How could she be doing? All this sort of, like, in a thick sort of Jamaican accent. And and myself and another officer, like, looked at each other as if to say, what the fuck? And um we were like, what are you talking about? You sat next to her, like, literally every day for the last sort of six to eight weeks. What, how can you suddenly? And she literally just her jaw fell to the floor. Her mouth was just stuck in the open position. She could not believe that the woman that she'd struck up this very sort of bizarre friendship with, who'd made her a cup of tea, she'd made her a cup of tea, sat next to every night. Good night, Rose. Good night, whatever her name was. Um, was that Rose West? She had absolutely no idea.
0: And the staff. Looked at Rose West, her mannerisms as kind of like was it an anti-figure just doing? Yeah, knitting? we used to
1: we used to sort of not to her face obviously, but we used to call her. Have you, have, have you unlocked Auntie Rose yet? Because that's what she was like. She had these like very thick bottled glasses. She never said an awful lot. She'd be very pleasant to you. Pass the time of day with you. Um, we used to get her out and do, let her do a bit of cleaning on the wing. Um, like I said, she was forever knitting. Um, she was very, one of these, how did how did it, one of these people that you knew that what she was, that her brain was ticking over like, like a swan peddling under the water. You know, you could see from just looking at it, she was very quiet, very unassuming, but you just knew that there was something about her that just didn't feel right. You just knew that, you know, like um, she was just like when, um, when Fred died, um, he committed suicide. Again, I just happened to be on um, and uh, it was uh, new year's day and it was about, I'd say about four or five o'clock, maybe a bit later. And I was sat down there. I was doing some paperwork and uh, the duty governor came on the wing and uh, he said, I've got to see Rose West. Um, Fred has killed himself. I was like, oh, okay, then Um, just bear with me. And I got up, went round the desk and literally Rose's um, cell was literally opposite the the office because we... Obviously wanted her there so we could keep an eye, A, an eye on her and be an eye on anybody going to her because you'd be surprised the amount of people who want to rock up and, and go and talk to Rose West, you know, and I'm, I you know, suddenly like, you know, the wing would be inundated with this member of that and that member of this and, you know, oops, sorry, this psychologist and that psychologist and all this sort of thing. Um and you'd be absolutely amazed at how many people suddenly would rock up when you had somebody um that sort of pronounced on, on your wing. So um I got up um and I just shouted to her, Rose, just come in, in a minute. The duty governor's here, he wants to have a word with you. Yes, Miss, okay. Very calm, very polite. Anyways, I opened the door, um, duty governor um Walked in, I walked in with him and, uh, he said, Rose, um, you might want to sit down. Um, I've got some really bad news for you. I'm afraid, um, Fred, um, has died. He's took his own life at Winston Green Prison at about lunchtime, um, or just after today. And there was just nothing, just nothing, you know, no emotion, no, there was almost like, um, a little bit of a twinkle in her eye that that you could see. I thought, she thought, that now Fred has died, they won't they won't still charge me, like he'll take the rap for everything. And I think that's what Fred thought, that if he topped himself, Rose would, would get off scot-free. But obviously it wasn't to be. Um, but I'm pretty sure that that's what Rose thought. There was no emotion there at all
0: do you think his crimes were worse because he was with rose
1: um i think i mean i i think that they were equally culpable i think she was as evil in her own right um and it does kind of grate on me sometimes why when you know they always seem to think that you know it's the poor woman who's been pulled along by this vicious evil man when actually the likes of myra hindley of rose west are equally evil in my eye you know there's there's no excuse and and i think you know quite often the 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 i say joe public but i mean People in general think, oh, well, it couldn't possibly like have been coming from the woman's side because women are, you know, we're nurturers and carers and child givers and child like looker afters, you know, and that, you know, but I think quite often, you know, the types of women that Rose West and Myra Hindley both were um, completely blew that out of the water.
0: So was Myra Hindley in there as well?
1: No, Myra Hindley was at uh, well, I mean, at, at some stage she was uh, at uh, Holloway Prison. She got her nose broken there, and uh, they moved her out. Um, and um, <laughs> she never she never crossed Holloway's doors again after that incident. Um, but when I met Myra, I was she was at Cook and Wood, um, and I'd taken some prisoners there on transfer, and she was working in the um, receptions area. made us all a, a cup of tea nothing special about her she looked like a bag lady she had some old brown cardigan on with holes in it she you know we think of Myra Hindley as you know this blonde bombshell with the piercing eyes and you know makeup and done up and but you know she her hair was thinning she was was mousy brown it was sort of in no real sort of haircut. It was sort of like down to about here. She was sort of shuffling along in some old slippers and an old skirt and a blouse. You know, there was nothing that, you know, if you'd have walked past her down the high street, you wouldn't have recognised her. There was nothing remarkable or outstanding about her whatsoever.
0: Isn't it a security risk for serial killers to be making the staff tea?
1: (laughs) Well, but she didn't kill, she killed children. She didn't kill, um, I mean, Myra was a, a chief manipulator. You know, let's, let's not forget that. You know, she could manipulate the birds out of the trees so much so that, uh, you know, she manipulated a governor to take her to Regent's Park for an ice cream. So let's not, let's exactly, so, you know, let's not forget that. How did she do that? Oh, it, I'd have to, I'd have to, look back in my, in my archives, but there was, um, a particular governor, um, I think it was at Cookham Wood, it might not have been, might have been a different prison, um, who became quite friendly with Myra, um, in what I would say, not, uh, a, not, a, um, a sexual way, but just as in a friendly way, um, and had a, like, cleaning her office, and, and she thought it would be a good idea to take Myra out for the day. Um, and ended up taking her to, I think it was Regent's Park, and and gave her an ice cream or something like this. I mean, there was all hell to pay when when that broke. The loose. media spot. Man. Oh God, yes, 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 yeah. Because not long after that, she suddenly, you know, decided she wanted to, um, you know, suddenly had this this rack of guilt and try and find the bodies that actually she had no chance of of finding on the moors and you know they took her out in the in the helicopter and landed on the moors and there was a big sort of hoo-ha about it and um but she had no no I don't think she had any any intention it was just all about her and you know she's she's um found god and she's she's um at peace with herself and you know she was going to try and ha- find the the bodies that they couldn't find keith bennett and um and I can't remember the the other little girl's name but um you know as if you know it was saint bloody myra um very very manipulative woman um, and I would expect nothing, you know, to be able to, to, to get a governor to do that. I mean, you've got to be pretty seriously manipulative. Um, you know, she, she cons some, some pri- prison officer um to running away with her, eloping with her, um, and making a cell key out of um an impression on a bar of soap. Oh my goodness. You know, till till they were caught. You know, it, it she, she was very, very minute. How were they caught? Um oh gosh, this this was like in the old Holloway. So it was late sixties, I think. Um I think it, I think it was all I think somebody found a letter Written by one of the, uh, one to the other, I, I think. Um, I don't really know the ins and outs of it. Suffice to say it happened, but, um, it was interesting. I always felt that whilst they, um, Rose West and Myra Hindley were both at Durham prison, they had an affair. Now that's an interesting <laughs> dynamic. I <didn't> know that. <laughs> I, yeah, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, so it, that would have been very interesting to, to sit back and watch that dynamic unfold. But, I mean, I, I, it didn't last long. And I think once the authorities found out, also thought that, mm, yeah, we need to put a stop to this, and
0: one of the two of them was shipped out. Do you think these high-profile serial killers score high on the narcissism scale?
1: Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, a lot of them are sociopaths. A lot of them are narcissistic. I think, um, you know, I'm I'm not qualified like um, psychoanalyst analytically wise, but, you know, you could, there is always, you know, in the background that, that manipulativeness, that lack of emotion, that, um, oh, you know, that sociopath, the, the friendliness, the, you know, and wouldn't you be, wouldn't you be, you know, that's how you, you know, you probably get off on it. You know, you go back to your cell at night and thought, huh, I had him like wrap around my little finger today. I got him to do this, that, and the other. You know, it's it's and this is what like staff have to be aware of. And I don't think that there is enough emphasis today on on the manipulative side of prisoners, because we all know, you know, prisoners have one thing on their on their side, which is time. They have time to think about things. They have time to plot and to plan. And, um, you know, you've got to be ahead of the game.
0: Before we go to the men's prison, then, are there any stories from Holloway that we've left out?
1: Oh, um, I tried. It. Oh, I'll tell you one. Um, you know, we were talking about suicide. There was a prisoner we had um, on um, the psychiatric wing called um, Amanda White. She was a black girl. She was she had mental health issues, but she was also very nasty. Um, she was she was very good at um, assaulting staff and what she used to do was she either like used to cover herself with baby oil or she used to cover herself up with soap, um, have no clothes on so it was very difficult like if she attacked you to get hold of anything um, and um, this one evening there was myself and another officer um, on duty down the psychiatric wing and they weren't the prisoners weren't out because they there was you need quite a lot of staff to get them all out, um, and there were only two of us on duty. But what we used to do was go around and check on everybody every fifteen twenty minutes, and um, we went to check on Amanda, and um, she. <laughs> she had was in bed but she had a um, a blanket over her head now these blankets we used to call them strip blankets because they weren't um like a normal blanket they were thick and kind of quilted a bit but you couldn't you couldn't like rip them so you couldn't like make ligatures or anything like that out of them but they were quite heavy so she was on her bed with this big blanket over her and um not moving And uh, this was her trick. Um, And we knew that that's what she did. But even so, you know, you have to check. So I looked at the officers that was with me and she looked at me and was like, well, here we go. So D pressed the alarm bell because we knew that if Amanda was up to her tricks, she'd be either lathered in soap or lathered in baby oil and we'd have a fight on her hands. So first things first, press the alarm bell because you know other staff are going to come. And then we went in and she literally, as we walked in um, and lifted the blanket off her, she just like let rip at us. And uh, she was covered in baby oil and, um, you know, we had to wear skirts then we weren't allowed to wear trousers and if you've ever been in a in a fight in a skirt it ends up like over your head round your you know everything's on show for the world and his wife um and um you know we she was well alive let me tell you and um we were trying to basically get her to a point where We could push her away from us and we could get out. But it was impossible. Like I said, at that time, we hadn't been trained in any sort of control and restraint techniques. Um, It was basically what you could grab hold of. And uh, at that time, Amanda uh, sunk her teeth into my arm. And uh, I've still got the scar somewhere along here today. You can just see it just there. Um, And um, she literally just bit down into my arm blood was was coming out of it and i said to well i shouted to to my mate i said oh you know she's got my arm i can't i can't get my arm away and the only thing that stopped her getting getting uh off my arm was uh, d punched her in the face and that was literally the only thing that um she could do and at that time she did, she did get off and, uh, we managed the other staff then came. We managed to like calm her down, push her away and get the fuck out of that cell. Um, but, um, obviously like, you know, my, my arm was puffed up. It was bleeding. It was bloody sore. Um, and, uh, the medics looked at it and said, you know, you need to go to hospital. But I said, you know, has she got anything that I need to be aware of, you know, hep B, hep C, um HIV which was just coming to the forefront and uh, they said well we can't tell you and I was like oh okay so anyways I ended up at A&E up up the Whittington Hospital and they put hydrochloric acid on it that was nice so when they'd finished scraping me off the ceiling um they said have you got any history about whoever did it and I said no the medics won't won't tell me so um I had to have a um, uh, some sort of injection, and then go back three months later, have another injection, um, and I think that was for HIV. And then have like blood tests to see if it had, it. I'd contacted it because I mean you, you, these people had come off the streets. You didn't, you didn't know what they had and what they didn't have.
0: Thank you for watching the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. Don't you hate it when you've got subscriptions out there that you don't know about taking all that cash out of your accounts? I recently found out I had four Amazon Prime subscriptions, now I've got it down to one. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Most people think they're spending $80 on their subscriptions, when in reality, the number is closer to $200. When you're signed up for so many things like streaming services you used to watch one show or free trials for delivery you don't use, it's so easy to lose track of what you're paying for. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com, S-H-A-U-N, rocketmoney.com slash Sean thanks for supporting our sponsor link is in the description box on YouTube back to the podcast
1: and um, so uh, so that was that um, it went to court the governor decided to send it to court um, the CPS decided to prosecute and uh, at court the magistrate said he didn't know why he was dealing with it that it was part of my job and he fined her £60 <sighs> and that's it
0: Oh my goodness, the, just the uncertainty that you might have something. Which...
1: Yeah, yeah. To say nothing of how fucking painful a bite oh. is down to your right through your skin. Oh. It's incredibly painful.
0: So, why the move to the men's prison?
1: Why the move to Scrubs? Well, we were always told we were mobile grades. And, um, you know, up until 19, about 1988, it was always um, women worked with women males work with males but to a point it's that's always to my mind seemed a bit of a false representation of society you know you don't have all women here and all men there you know there is a mixture and that m- dynamic brings a much more settled atmosphere and, um, I'd often thought about transferring to the male estate. Like I said, I went up to Wakefield, had a look around there. I went to Full Sutton, had a look around there, quickly turned on my heels there and buggered off because I thought, no, I don't want to work at Full Sutton. Um, and, um, so this opportunity came along to go to Wormwood Scrubs and, um, and I kind of took it. Um, I was told I was going Um, and, um, and that was that. And so, you know, I thought, well, I can either end my career here if I don't want to go, or I can just get on with it and see how I get on. And i tell you now, it was the best thing I ever did. I really, really enjoyed working at Wormwood Scrubs and I really enjoyed working with male prisoners. Um, not all of them, but the majority of them were very respectful. Um, obviously, you know, there's the odd one or two that, you know, like to call you this, that and the other. Usually a word I've heard a hundred times, never one that I thought, oh, I must bank that one because I haven't heard that one before. Um, So, you know, (laughs) name calling doesn't bother me. I'm quite thick skinned. Um, But yeah, once once I'd got into Wormwood Scrubs and Wormwood Scrubs is such an amazing building. You know, it's this old Victorian jail steeped in history, um, and and what I call a proper prison. One under Kane Road. That's right. Yeah, with the twat towers that they. I think they're Grade Two Star listed towers. Both of those towers.
0: There's a little building outside um, that the Kursler Trust that's occupy. That's it, That's and I've, right. I've been yeah. There many times. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Them. The Kesler yeah, Trust. Yeah. yeah.
1: And opposite. Um used to be Prison Quarters, but I think it's all condemned now. Um, but, uh, yeah, and just round the corner towards the car park is the Visitor's Centre, a nice brand-new one uh, that I helped uh, design, actually, but that's for another day. Uh, but anyways, um, so, uh, yeah, went to Wormwood Scrubs. Um.
0: How did the challenges differ immediately from a female prison to the men's?
1: Okay. Well, interestingly... The senior officer at Wilmot Scrubs was like, God, nothing happened if the senior officer on the wing didn't say so. Bearing in mind, like, a wing at Holloway was maybe 90 women, which in itself is enough. But I walked on to D wing, which was the lifer wing, which was where I was first sent. was 244 men in single cell accommodation. So you can see the difference in size straight away. So... And of course, you know you've got you've got old staff there. What I would class as people probably say I'm a bit of a dinosaur, but but that what I would class as dinosaurs. I always remember in my SOs exam um, in the in, in the I'd done an exam past that, but then you had to go and do a, a board. And one of the questions they asked me was. So you're a newly promoted senior officer and you walk into the office and there's an old dinosaur sat in front of you with his feet on the table. What would you do? I say, Oh, I'd tell him to get his feet off the table. (laughs) He's trying to sit there with his feet up the table as I walk in. Um, and, um, you know, and, but uh, Scrubs to a point was, was quite full of what I would say old staff, you know, 20 years plus. Ex military. Ex military. Been there, done that, seen it. Um, and, um, not that that was an issue. I didn't have any issue with, with that. Some of the language that they used to prisoners, I didn't agree with, um, and I would call them out on it. Um, you know, I don't mind effing and jeffing with the best of them, but there's one way to do things. And then there's, you know, literally calling people out, which I didn't agree with. And certainly once people get to know you, they don't bother doing it. You know, some of the some of the jokes I heard at, at Wormwood Scrubs would make you make your hair curl present company <laughs> accepted. <laughs> but I mean, you know, like, you know, homophobic, racist, you know, really sort of like near the edge. And I, at first I found that very difficult. To, did, they, did they test you? Maybe, maybe they did to see how far it would go. It didn't go very fucking far, I can tell you now, because <laughs> I won't, I won't stand for that. You know, I've I've been discriminated against myself, so you know, don't even go down that road with me. Um, and uh, so that's what we did. I, I walked in there, and I, it was it stank of like urine and, um unwashed bodies and it was dirty but there was just something about it just I just felt comfortable there I never somebody said to me well, what's the most frightening thing you've has ever happened to you and I was and I'm like nothing you know I've never ever can honestly say hand on my heart I've never been frightened because I think if I'd ever been frightened I'd have turned around and walked out there's been times I've been apprehensive. There's been times I've been wary. Um, never frightened, though.
0: What um, were those times when you were most apprehensive and wary? Um, well,
1: I think you get a feel for a for a place. And, you know, you can walk onto a wing and prisoners are out on association. And you can just feel like the, the backs of the ha- hairs on your neck, like maybe... Rising up a bit, where prisoners start muttering as you walk past, or you know, doors sort of slowly shut as you walk past, or prisoners go into their cells. They don't stand and chat to you as per usual, or you know, just just very subtle things. You can usually tell if something's brewing. I found that a quite a difference. Whereas, like the Holloway, women are much more spontaneous. You know, literally, bang. And, you know, you've got a fight in front of you. Whereas I did think that with the male side of things were possibly slightly more predictable in that respect.
0: What were the circumstances that led up to the male throwing the bodily waste on you?
1: Um, oh, he, he was a, a pain in the ass, really. Um, he, he, like I said, you know, you're not going to get on with it with every prisoner and um, you've got to accept that. Um, But this guy pushed it to the limit. He was very anti-women. He was very anti-me because I was a woman and I was a senior officer. And as I said, when I went to scrub, senior officers were like, God, you know, if the SO said no, then it was absolutely don't even go there. Um, And um, he had been particularly um, he'd had a warning about his behavior to some of the female staff. Um, and he he was a he was a bit of a what I would call pushing. He pushed the wire, so he'd he'd stand very close to certain female staff. He'd try and intimidate them, and you know, um, make comments about you know their their breasts or or them in general, or just pushing it, pushing it. And he'd made this comment about uh, one of the female officers one day um who'd come to me in tears um and I'd said right well that's enough he's you know he's had his warning we're going to put him on basic and that's what we did you know there is um a, a a um it's a sort of all prisoners are on a standard regime but you can have an enhanced prisoner and you can have a basic prisoner and a basic prisoner is just that you know all privileges are removed no tv um, no privilege visit, um, reduced spending in the canteen, um, all all those sort of what what you see as privileges and that you can earn by your behaviour are removed. You know, you're locked in your cell much more. You're not allowed to associate with other prisoners, etc., etc. Anyways, he took he took umbrage at this at this um, this decision, um, and I, as the SO, made it. I wrote him up um said that if his behavior still continued he'd end up down the seg um and literally you know read him his fortune um and uh, he didn't like it um and then a couple of days later um one of the other prisoners on the wing i was chatting to him just about the weather and what he was up to and how his course was going and and uh he said to me gov he's just um just to be aware. He says, um, look after yourself, watch your back. Well, I said, any particular reason? He says, I can't say any more than that. Just watch your back, Gov. And I went, is it? And he went, yeah. And I went, okay. And, um, and that was that. And then um, that evening, I wasn't actually supposed to be there. I'd stayed on to do a bit of paperwork. um, And um, I was sat down in my office and the alarm bell on the wing had had gone off now when the alarm bell goes off on a on a wing it echoes around it's very audible very loud um prisoners start jeering and cheering because they see staff starting running um as and i did you know i came out of my office locked the door quick ran because the i think the alarm was on the fours i was on the ground floor and as i was running uh, down the corridor um, from up above, I didn't see who, I didn't see when and I didn't see where, but I felt it was, um, well, I was potted. And as I said earlier, it's a mixture of urine and feces that has been shook up and kept for a couple of days. Um, and next thing I was just covered. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's done to humiliate. It's done to, you know, as a as a sort of almost like a retribution um, and, um, other staff were coming onto the wing who'd heard the alarm around, from around the jail. And, um, the duty governor came on, took one look at me and said, come on, we need to get you a new uniform. And he took me off to the uniform stores, got me a new uniform. I went to the uh, gym, um, where the PIs have, uh, their own showers and that and went and had a shower, put a new uniform on and went straight back to the wing. I knew it was him. I, I, I knew it. I didn't have any proof, but I knew it was him. And um, I had him taken to the seg. He, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't fight. He didn't, he knew exactly. And then um, he was shipped out to a prison up north. Wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a pleasant experience. There was no, no way around it, um, but it happened. And, you know, thank God it was only the once, so.
0: One of your chapters, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Who was that?
1: Ah, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. You're going to have to remind me on that chapter, because I can't remember. Oh,
0: I'm just shooting off the hip here as well. Um, who are the characters you met in the earlier um, scrubs?
1: Um, well, the... The boy who cried wolf. I don't remember that chapter. You know, chapter it's my 17. bloody book. <laughs> chapter seventeen. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> oh God. I have to read my book Did again. I got a copy around. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, upstairs. Um, oh gosh,
0: I really don't know what that is. Who, who are the other memorable characters? Um, then? Well,
1: we had uh, phones for you.
0: Oh yes,
1: phones H- for you. We,
0: phones uh, for you.
1: Right, so phones for you. He was. um his name was Ricky, and he was a rather a likable lad. I, he kind of sort of brought the the mothering instinct out in me, really. He was one of these that had got in a gang, uh, got into a fight, one punch, and the guy he hit fell, hit his head, died, um, and he got a life sentence for it because <sighs> you know that it it, it was that was what it was
0: is it manslaughter
1: yes but manslaughter does carry a, a life sentence as well so he 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 was doing life he had a about a 15 year tariff it wasn't a huge tariff in comparison to some of them but he was rather a likable chap uh young lads and you could kind of see you know he he'd got on the wrong step really he'd got into bad company and been led astray and but he was all right, was quite quite amusing guy. But we called him Phones for You because, love him, he he liked to try and supply phones, but he had the most ridiculous hiding places in his cell for phones that we all knew. <laughs> so every couple of weeks we'd go in, search his cell, and we'd find three or four mobile phones. Of course, they're illegal in jail. Um, and he'd get sent to the SEG um, for usually two weeks at a time. Go down the seg, take his budgie with him, and off he'd go. <laughs> yeah. Lifers at that time were were allowed budgies. Um, it did make me laugh because some of them were very big birds, and I and I sh- couldn't see how, like a parakeet, was the same same size as a budgie. But, um, anyways, it stopped in about two thousand and seven. But everybody who was then um, had a bird was allowed to keep it until obviously it died. Um, and um, so that was that was um, phones for you. Um, but he got, he, he
0: got busted, didn't he?
1: Yeah, several times. Several times for for hiding phones and keeping phones, and you know, we we did a we he his personal officer because all lifers had a had a personal officer. His personal officer did a lot of work with him to try and get him away from this supply and emote. Because basically he was being used by other prisoners to supply mobiles, um, but you know, love him, he he was a nice but dim Tim. You know, he 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 couldn't see that they were just using him because they knew if he got caught with them, he'd off off he'd go to the second, and they wouldn't. So it, it it was a bit of a sad case, really, but um, but worth mentioning in the book, I think.
0: So. There's a recurring theme of how you're going to deal with the avalanche of drugs, and one of the worst parts is when a staff member gets involved in yes. bringing it in. How did you detect that?
1: Um, at that time, I was governor of security, um, and we set up an intelligence office, which was separate to security. So all the information, because a prison is a hub of intelligence and information, Um, And all the information that we gathered on a daily basis would go through the intelligence office and it would be um, analyzed by analysts, um, cross-checked, discussed with our police liaison. So we were we were getting very good at gathering intelligence. And as part of that um, intelligence system was our anti-corruption procedures. Um, Now, all staff had had anti-corruption training, all staff that came into Wormwood Scrubs, if they'd had it at the training school, once they started at Wormwood Scrubs, it was part of their induction. So and they had to sign to say that they'd had it. So if they did turn out to be um, corrupt, we could go to court and say, look, they've had this. Here's their signature at the bottom that says that they've had it and they understood it and they had no questions on it. So it was a very valuable bit of paper. Um, Not all prisons did it. Um, Some sort of, you know, didn't see that much emphasis on it. But when you've got a jail of... Well, we locked up about 1,205 prisoners and probably at any one time there was 100 staff um, and that's just prison staff. That's not education, psychologists, um, nurses, doctors, PEIs, caterers, you know, hundreds of different staff in on a daily admin staff hundreds of different staff in on a daily basis and they all got the same training because when people say about corrupt staff you know it's not just prison officers it's it's what I've just mentioned so it's all staff so we had what I thought were were quite good anti-corruption measures and at that time also at head office they just started an anti-corruption unit for the prison service dealing with corruption in all the jails so you had um somewhere where you could um focus your your intelligence on so every every month we had an anti-corruption meeting um with the guys from head office the local police liaison uh, my intelligence staff and my
0: um security manager here is a word from today's sponsor aura if you google someone you can find out all kinds of personal information about them This information is accessible because of data brokers who profit by selling your information to robocallers, telemarketers, spammers. You can use my link, https.dot forward slash forward slash aura.com. Aura is A-U-R-A forward slash Sean Atwood, S-H-A-U-N-A-T-T-Wood to try two weeks for free and see how many data brokers are sharing your info also linked in my description box on this YouTube version, or scan the QR code on the screen.
2: Aura also monitors your emails and passwords to see if they were involved in a data breach and exposed on the dark web, and gives you the recommendations on what to
0: do. Aura has almost every internet safety tool you'll ever need, all inside one app. So, it was always at the forefront of of your mind.
1: Now... In, in the prison system, just as you shut one door, another one will open. Scrubs had recently been um, netted. We'd got bird netting to um, be a put round the whole jail so as to uh, stop parcels being thrown over the wall. Because that was that was the trick was we're right next to Hammersmith Hospital, right on Duquesne Road. So it's right in the middle of an estate. Um, so... It's very accessible um, as a jail. So people used to just wander up the sidewall and throw a parcel of drugs over or a dead pigeon sewn up with drugs or or whatever. And, um, you know, we were we were picking up probably 20, 25 parcels a day. And that's the ones we were getting. So just think of the ones that we weren't getting. So
0: there was a multiple of that. Oh, multiples.
1: In. Yes, literally multiples. If you weren't careful where you walked around the outside wall, you know, you could get lumped by something. <sighs> you know, myself, I I, I, I walked around um, the wall with uh, one of my security officers and a dead pigeon literally fell in front of <sighs> me, sewn up the middle, um, stuffed with drugs. <sighs> um, but, um, you know... So I took the decision. I got a bid going um, for we had um, a bird netting specialists in to literally net the whole jail. Now, that happened. Um, it was a fabulous bid went in and we got 70,000 pounds to do it. Um, and it was worth every single penny because drugs, uh, you know, you can imagine the effects of drugs in prison, not only on prisoners, but on their families outside who are bullied, coerced, threatened to bring drugs in, etc, etc. So um, anyways, we did that. But as I said, going back, once one door is shut, there's another one. So another one will quickly open. So we did a load of training with all staff of all um areas in the jail um on corruption and the fact that we' now had the jail netted um and this will put more pressure on staff to bring drugs in um and um to some degree, that happened but again, because our intelligence systems were developing so quickly we were we were poised ready and um we had. One member of staff that we were pretty sure was bringing drugs in. Intelligence suggested that they were. For some reason, these, these staff um, trust what prisoners say. But let me tell you now, a prisoner will tell on a member of staff quicker than blink if it means that they will get out of bother. You know, do not think that prisoners are going to have your back because they will not when the chips are down. And this prisoner had been caught with a mobile phone. Now, that mobile phone was sent to um, our head office and the data on it was downloaded. Part of that data was an officer's number. And that's what started the fact that we thought this officer was corrupt. Um, She was supplying drugs, mobiles. Um, on a regular basis, we believed, to various prisoners around um, her wing, which, of course, then were transferred around the jail. Um, And it had got to the point where we felt that we knew when she was going to do the next drop. Um, She was followed by plainclothes detectives outside the prison. Um, When she went for lunch, she'd um, asked the staff on the wing as she'd gone for lunch... She was going to the KFC. Did anybody want any? Um, And a couple of the staff had said, yeah, we'll have chicken and chips or whatever. And um, she'd gone to um, meet a guy in a car park, um, had some drugs um, given to her to bring back at the bottom of this KFC bucket because she knew we had drug dogs and thought that if she masked the smell with the KFC... The dogs wouldn't would um, pick the drugs up, how wrong she was. Um, and um, we were waiting for her uh, when she came back. And um, we put the drugs dog on her, passive drugs dog called Monty on her, and he sat. And um, we said, is there any reason why the dog sat on you? And she said, no, I no idea. Um, I think somebody was smoking cannabis on the wing this morning. Yeah. Heard that one several times. Um, doesn't wash. Um, we took the KFC offer. her. We found, um, um, some like remnants of, um, drugs there. We thought that she had some more in her car. So we said to her, Have you got any objection to a search in your car? She said, No, we, the car was in the car park. We have cameras all around the car park. The cameras were trained on the car. Um, we put, um, an active dog in there, one that is specifically searches areas and not people. And, uh, he found, um, a block of cannabis like this, um, straight away near enough, um, which was, I think it was tucked under the seat somewhere. She then accused us of planting it again, heard that one before. Um, she came to the office in the security department And uh, we made her sit there and said, we've called the police. The police are coming. We arrested her because um, a prison officer has the same um, rights as a prison, as a police officer to to arrest somebody. Um, And um, she sat there. And all the time that she was sat there, she was demanding to go to the toilet because she said she was on her period, wouldn't let her go. Um, And... um, When um, the police came, they said to me, um, do you want her handcuffed? And I went, absolutely, I want her handcuffed. I want her marched out of here in handcuffs. I want everybody to see her marched out in handcuffs. And um, that's what they did. When they put her in the back of the car, they said to her, the policewoman said to her, you know, when you get to the station, you're going to have an internal, don't you? So if you've got anything on you now that you shouldn't have, um, now's a good time to give it up. And uh, out of her mouth uh, came a, a long bit of cotton, and which she pulled up. And at the end of it was a, a big thing of heroin. Um, and uh, I mean, they weren't going to give her an internal at all at the police station. Just put that out there. Um, so uh, so anyways, they arrested her. They searched her house, and in her house was um, all brand-new electrical equipment, tablets, phones, um, big TVs, all this like brand-new stuff that she'd spent all this money on. Um, And um, she ended up at Suffolk Crown Court, where she received a seven-year sentence for um, conveying unauthorised articles into a jail.
0: So did she come back to your prison? No, she
1: because our prison was a uh, male jail. Oh, yes, of course. So uh, she went to Bronzefield ah.
0: to serve her seven years. And she'd been so brazen as to approach you before all of this. Oh, yes, yeah. And say, what's this about me being under investigation? Yeah,
1: I don't know how... I don't know whether she was trying to throw us off the scent or what, but... um I came into my office. I was always in work about by about seven o'clock-ish every morning. And I was sat there with a cup of tea, um, doing some paperwork. And then she walked and I went, oh, good morning, Patricia. How are you? And she said, uh, I'm all right, but I just want to have a word with you. And I said, and what's that about? She said, well, I've heard I'm under investigation. And I said, well, who from? She said, well, it doesn't matter who from, but I've just heard I'm under investigation. And I said, look, Patricia, if you were under investigation, would you be sat here in my office? And she went, mm, no. I said, well, there you go. What a load of it, And off she went, quite happy.
0: Because you wanted her to behave normally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But
1: I don't know whether she got got the collie wobbles and felt a little bit on the... Um, she'd just sort of see how the land lies. Mm. Um, maybe she got a bit scared, but I, I would like to know why she suddenly thought that. But, uh, yeah.
0: Was she in a relationship with a prisoner? Yes,
1: yeah, she was in, re- in a relationship with a prisoner. Um, and he was the prisoner who um, killed himself in the seg. What? And when he went for his autopsy, um, under his foreskin was found a wrap a of heroin. Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah. Because in Arizona, they do a foreskin search on the prisoners. Do they? Yeah. Uh, you're
1: not allowed to... I mean, the only thing that you can do with male prisoners, not females, is make them squat. Um, obviously, it has to be by a male officer to a male prisoner, obviously. I mean... I wouldn't want to do it
0: personally. Fortunately, the finger wave had been ruled unconstitutional by the time I got into the Arizona prison. <laughs> oh because my they were god! Putting the gloves on and doing the finger. Oh, uh, that so led it, to all kinds of situations. I can imagine. You can imagine. Yeah. yeah, and
1: and why would you want to do that? I mean, we did have, um, we did have a prisoner who, um, was uh, the boy who called Wolf, the prisoner who had a mobile phone, um inserted possibly uh, see we had a um, we had a uh, we had a um, several prisoners who um, now people may say how did you find out if prisoners had mobile phones well obviously there's the the obvious cell search there's also um, we used um, very high technology um, listening for phones at night which we used to do quite a lot. Um, and then you, you, but the problem with that was once you burst one cell door open to get a mobile phone, then, you know, everybody on the wing knew that you were there and you kind of lost the, the impotence of it all. But, um, we also had what was called the boss chair. Now the boss chair, if you can imagine, um, an electric chair, um, like the kind they use in the States, that's what the boss chair looked like. And a lot of prisoners actually thought it was an electric chair, but a boss chair is a body orifice security scanner and it's used to detect mobile phones inserted um, into orifices on male prisoners. Yes, so um, we used it quite often. We used it um, in the segregation unit, we used it in reception, so prisoners coming in from courts um, who um, had uh, hidden mobiles internally um so we used it quite a lot and uh, we had this one prisoner who had um a mobile phone we thought um inserted um inside of him um and uh, he was sent to the segregation unit um the staff there put him on the boss chair and the boss went off um all sort of lights and alarms etc um I've never quite seen anybody jump up so quick, actually, <laughs> when, when he'd sat down. But um, anyways, um, so we said to him, look, the bus is going off. Uh, we know you've got a mobile phone inserted. We'd like that mobile phone. No, I am, I am. It's wrong. It's wrong. And so I said, right, OK. Well, in that case, you'll be staying in the seg because we wouldn't want you to go back to the wing if it's somebody else's phone. Um, and they might not be happy that, uh, you know, you've inserted it anally or it, you know if you're holding it for somebody you know this is where you're staying okay gov anyways this went on for two or three days and I said to the seg staff anytime uh, every morning I want him put on the boss chair every evening I want him put on the boss chair and every time he sat on it it went off um and then um the I got a phone call a couple of days later uh, from the senior officer in the seg and he said gov um I can't remember what the prisoner's name was, but he, he said he's, he's ready to, to give the phone out. And I was like, great, that's fabulous. And he said, um, yeah, there's only one thing, though, Gov. And I said, what's that? He said, he can't get it out. It's stuck. So he would pushed it up so high. I mean, it just doesn't, it just beggars belief, doesn't it? But uh, he pushed it off, up so high, he, he had no means of getting it out. Oof. So I called the duty doctor, said to the duty doctor about it. He went down um, to see him in the seg. And he said, he he rang me and said, uh, sorry, Gov, I can't get anywhere near that. He needs to go to hospital. And um, so that's what ended up happening. He went, we had to crank up an escort and uh, send him next door to Hammersmith Hospital to get this phone removed. And... (laughs) And the officer came back, came up to my office, and he said, "And he'd had this like phone in a bag, and he put it on my oh. desk." And I was like, "Cheers, thanks for that." But
0: yeah, one of the things that fascinated me was how they train the dogs with the tennis balls.
1: Yes, yeah, you when when you're choosing a drugs dog, um, the dog has to be um, very interested in a tennis ball, like it has to be. You know, it's life. You know, I've got two black labs and both of them would would lay down their life if it meant they'd got their tennis ball. They'd probably both be quite good uh, drugs dogs, actually. Um, but if it's not interested in it, you've got to ha- it's like, um, you know, you've got to give it something as a reward. And it's got to be something that it absolutely loves above life itself. And a, and a biscuit or anything like that, that, that's not good enough. It has to be something that that the action of actually giving it pleases the dog so much that he's going to do anything he can to get that ball. And that's how they train them. So that it begins off, they they put um, a bit of cannabis inside a tennis ball. And then they throw the ball for the dog. So he gets the smell of the tennis ball. And then they take the cannabis out. And then they still throw the ball for the dog. So he knows it's a tennis ball. And then they get rid of that tennis ball and just use a normal tennis ball. And then they start hiding the drugs around. And, then, and that's what they do. And then the dog associates the drugs with the tennis ball and thinks, well, if I find drugs, I'm going to get that. And then, like I said, there's two types of Drug dogs, there's passive and active. Passive searches uh, people, so you see them at airports, prisons, and that. And and their tell sign is they sit. They don't jump all over you, they sit. And then you get an active dog um, who will search areas. And their telltale sign is um, they sit again or they'll point. Spaniels in particular can point Um, just literally freeze and the tail will wag and and that's that but you also get uh, not just drug dogs you know now drug uh, dogs can search for mobile phones they can search we we had the first hooch dog um, at uh, Wormwood Scrubs one of my dog handlers um, had heard about this course that um, hooch is a Literally 100% alcohol. Prisoners brew it themselves. You know, usually around Christmas, you do what's called a hooch run, where you go right the way through the prison looking for hooch. It's, they, they get the yeast from a couple of bits of bread. They get the fruit from the canteen, mix it with water, stick it on a radiator. And, uh, wait for nature to take its course and it bubbles up and it, it can cause blindness, it can cause death, it can cause extraordinary sense, uh, sense of strength, it can cause hallucinations, you know, it's lethal, lethal stuff. Um, talk about like moonshine. That's what hooch is like. It's disgusting stuff and it absolutely reeks. But, um, this dog, One of my dog handlers came to me and said, I've heard that there's going to be a new course about um, training a dog to find hooch. So I said, great, get on it. And um, she did. And uh, off she went with the spaniel. And uh, he came back fully trained to find hooch as well. And in her first couple of days, Mm -hmm. she had like big sort of tubs of hooch that prisoners had been brewing in various places um so it was very very successful and i used to say to the wings just before christmas get the hooch dog on your wings get it going through it's brilliant Uh, so we had the first one in the country at scrubs
0: in arizona because it's almost 50 degrees heat they just put the hooch bag against the wall and it just cooks it and they have to burp it so it doesn't explode yes yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Did you ever try it? I
0: did. It gave me the shit, so I didn't have it again.
1: Yeah. It's lethal, lethal stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Horrid stuff.
0: So there was a really gripping story in the book where you bump heads with a medical professional, a doctor, I think, who said this um, inmate needs to go to the hospital, but you suspected something was...
1: Yeah. Now, as I said, uh, Wormwood Scrubs right next door to Hammersmith Hospital. Every prisoner who leaves the jail or any jail is, um, will a is it's a security risk because, you know, you haven't got control of them. They're mixing with the public. Um, you know, they're not behind a 12 foot wall with barbed wire around it. So, um, Every prisoner who goes to hospital is risk assessed. And um, that risk assessment will determine, you know, how many staff, um, what department, uh, what restraints will he be cuffed, uncuffed, um, double cuffed, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, And every prisoner who leaves the jail for whatever reason is risk assessed. And uh, we had this um, prisoner who we believed. Well, it was one lunchtime, and I got a phone call from the orderly officer who said that he'd got a prisoner on uh, E Wing who was rolling around in agony, but he thought it was false. Um, and um, he got the doctor down, he was getting the doctor down to see this prisoner. So I said, Who is it? And he said the name of the prisoner. And um, I said, I'll get security to have a look at it. So I phoned up security and uh, said, can you just have a look at this prisoner? Um, Tell me if there's any sort of red flags going about. Anyways, they came back to me and said, yeah, we think he's going to try and and escape from prison. Great. So uh, anyways, uh, a couple of minutes later, I got a phone call from the duty doctor. And he said that this prisoner um, was... um, had to go out to hospital, was very ill. um, And I said, look, you know, there's red flags flying around that this prisoner is going to try and escape. Um, I said, "Um, are you sure that he, you know, needs... Yes, absolutely sure. And at the end of the day, you know, I can kind of understand where medics come from. You know, they look at prisoners as patients. We look at prisoners as prisoners um and you know if this guy had died and he'd refused to go out to um refused him to go out to hospital i can kind of see all that but it was just like the abruptness the the non sort of discussion about it that i found quite difficult anyways um i said okay um and at the end of the day you know life pres- preservation of life takes over security so he he had to go out. And I said to the orderly officer, Andy, he's going to have to go out, but we're going to have to do one hell of a risk assessment. So uh, we phoned the local police. Um, we have a direct line to the police, um, all prisons do, and uh, said, um, we have this guy going out to Hammersmith Hospital. We think that it may be um, an escape attempt. Um, is there any way you can send a car? And they said, no, we're far too busy, but we'll send a patrol car to go past. I said, okay. Uh, I phoned the Hammersmith uh, security department, said we've got a very risque prisoner coming out. Don't give them any details, just to say that if you could, like, be about there, that would be great. Okay. Um, Phoned the head of security for Hammersmith Hospital and told her that we had grave concerns about this prisoner. She... Um, she took that on board. So we put the escort up. Usual escort is uh, two staff and one prisoner. Uh, but we put it up to three staff that he'll be double handcuffed. So that's like that. And then handcuffed again to an officer. Um, and um, even though he, they called the ambulance, but even the ambulance men said, we're not sure that this is kosher. Um, which, you know, kind of just made things worse. So anyways, they agreed to take him next door. um, And literally five minutes later, I got the call that I dreaded to hear was that there'd been an armed um, escape. The prisoner had gone. The staff had been held up with a gun in their faces um, for the cuff key. um, And, um, you know... (laughs) Everybody was in in bits, and myself and my boss literally ran from Wormwood Scrubs to Hammersmith Hospital next door. Literally, that's what we did. We ran, um, and um, when we got there, the ambulance woman was a complete wreck, crying, nervous, uh, shaking. You know, she was she was nearly hysterical. Um, my staff. Two of them were okay, but clearly shaken up. The third was just in bits. Um, What can you say to them? You know, what do you say to them? You know, they were saying, well, we're really sorry, Gov. He had a gun. And I'm like, you know, you did absolutely the right thing. You know, you don't hang about. Here's the keys. Take them. You know, nobody's worth a a bullet, you know. And, um, you know, I... We got them back to Wormwood Scrubs. Of course, you know, the guilt you feel is is unbelievable that, that you'd put three people in that position. Um, and out of those three staff, one um, retired, medically retired from the service, one killed himself, and the third um, regraded from an officer to an admin grade. Oh, dear. So, you know, it had far reaching, um, much more, it was, it was more about the staff than the prisoner. Prisoner I couldn't have given a toss about, quite frankly, he was an arsehole anyways. But, but the staff, um, and what went, what, what happened to them and, um, well, it broke them. And, um, you know, nobody knows how they're going to feel or react in a situation like that until it actually happens to you. And, um, you know, it was it was one of my biggest regrets, I think. But, you know, I've I've been over it time and time and time again. And I can't think of anything that I didn't do that I should have done or anything that I would have done differently had it happened again.
0: Was anybody ever held accountable for anything?
1: Yes, they caught him um, a couple of, I think it was about a month later they caught him. They never caught the gunman, though, but they re-caught him. They re him to a Category A prisoner and an E-list prisoner and sent him to a Category A jail. You know, he did himself no favours whatsoever. But um, But it wasn't, by then it wasn't about him. It was about, it was for me it was about the staff and um you know their how they dealt with it afterwards
0: another situation that surprised me was when a police escort took a prisoner to spend time with his girlfriend
1: you see when i say you know there's there's bad eggs in every basket and those those police um staff were very corrupt they what had happened was police try to um clear up crime with prisoners Um, and they try to um, get prisoners to admit that you know yeah okay they did the burglary uh, there but actually we did A, B and C and can you take that into consideration and the judge looks at that favorably they get a, um, um, a decent sentence and the police get a clear up rate. and this one prisoner they wanted to take out supposedly to a lineup and again Prisoner leaving the jail, it's it's a security risk. Um, and as I said, you know, all prisoners are risk assessed. This one um, prisoner we had intelligence on that he was going to try and get drugs into the prison. Via his police visit. So we said as part of the risk assessment, I said that he was to go from the jail to the police station and straight back that his curfew time was six o'clock, that he'd be in the, in the jail. Um, and when he came back, he was put on the boss chair. The boss went off. He was taken to a side room and said, you know, we know you've got um, a mobile secreted internally. And he went, oh, all right then, Gov. And he proceeded to give the officers uh, the mobile phone um, and a packet of drugs which he said he got um, whilst he was on his police production. Um, and so obviously, you know, when when I'd spoke, before he went, I'd spoken to the officer in charge. It was a bit, for my liking, a bit cocky. Uh, he didn't want to listen to anything I had to say. It was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and um, I said, you know, we do believe he's going to try and get drugs in. Anyways, it turns out after um, a huge uh, falling out, I stopped all productions to the Metropolitan Police literally overnight through this one guy. Um, and, of course, that caused ructions. You can imagine. Gold Command was opened and, and all sorts because all these like police who thought that they were taken out prisoners were absolutely told, no way. And... Um, it went to our head office. I mean, it was it was just, you can't imagine how, how big it was. Um, and um, so they did this um, big investigation. And um, it, it, it turned out that this these three um, police had taken this guy um, to his girlfriend's, left him there for a couple of hours, went and picked him up, then took him for a Kentucky. So he'd had his had his um, his nuptials with his girlfriend, got the drugs from her, then been taken off to get a Kentucky, then taken to the police station to get all these TICs taken into consideration. And um, then they tried to falsify the records. But obviously, police cars are tracked, aren't they? So... Anyways, the the number one governor and me were called to Gold Command at Scotland Yard um, with this big meeting with all these, like, what, well, it was the chief constable, the assistant chief constable. Um, I mean, you walked into the, the room and, you know, you were blinded by all these pips on all these shoulders. You know, that's how high-ranking it was uh, to receive the biggest sort of sweep in apology and arse licking that you've ever seen about how dreadfully sorry they were and they asked me would I be prepared to um go in front of the disciplinary board that um the officer in charge of the escort was was being done under and I said absolutely um and um two got final written warnings and he got the sack and he was the one who was like yeah yeah whatever whatever and i thought yeah well that just kind of serves you right and then you look you look now at the metropolitan police and the 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 name that it's got for itself now and you think yeah it hasn't got any better has it
0: it hasn't sadly so we've interviewed a lot of ex cops and really well meaning people but a lot they say a lot of the rot comes from the top And also they point out that there's so much money in the drugs market that gets bigger every year. Mm. It's always going to corrupt some members of that profession it comes into contact with. And when we get people on who say these things, sometimes people are sceptical. But to hear that from a prison governor, your first-hand experience, I imagine that's quite shocking for some of the viewers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, like I said, you know, you get, you get bad apples in every basket, particularly in a big organizations like the Met, like the NHS, like the prison service. You know, you're always going to get bad apples. And I accept that. But I mean, this happened, what, 10, 15 years ago? And, and, and it just doesn't to me seem to have got any better. You know, it, it's, it's, it's the age old adage, you know, why I think that there's so much sort of, sexual relationships between prisoners and staff these days it's it's inexperience it's not having the support and it's training and you know if, if once like i said once you start on that slippery slidey ladder and if you've got nowhere to turn then you know you're hooked and and they know that and that's that's how it how it happens
0: so you mentioned some of the most dangerous high-profile prisoners in the female side who were their equivalents in the male side
1: Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, we had, um, not so dangerous, but we had, like, you know, Pete Doherty, we had. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The musician. We had, yeah we, and he
0: had a bit of an attitude, didn't he?
1: He had a big attitude, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm actually in his book. I haven't read his book, but I think I'm actually in his book. Did you book. bust his
0: balls a bit? Uh,
1: slightly, yeah. <laughs> You're watching this Pete? yeah. I feel. No hard feelings. Uh, yeah. What what did he get up to? Oh, well, you know, he got he got um some ridiculous sentence for because he was contempt of court or something, he was taking drugs or didn't go to rehab or so. he got something like, I don't know, three months or something. And, and to anybody who's been addicted to drugs, there is not a lot you can do with somebody in three months, bearing in mind he was only going to do six weeks. You know, there's not a lot you can do with people serving such a short sentence. Um, and it's, it, to my mind, it's be- it would be better to put those sort of people in the community, in drug rehabs, you know, prison is not the place for them. But obviously he got the sentence from the from the judge and uh, we had him at scrubs and um you know again it's like flies to shit once you have somebody who is well known that's it you know he's seen by every tom dick and harriet you know it's 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 like you know he's he's just All these prisoners know, staff know. So I used to keep his record in my office so that nobody could get hold of it and send, like, you know, pictures to the media, shocker, um, or or things like that. But his cell card, so every prisoner had a cell card outside which says their name, their number, um, and whether there's, like, one or two prisoners in that cell who they are. Um, And, of course, he had his cell card kept disappearing because prisoners were taking it and he was signing the autograph. Anyways, you know, he was on he was on our detox unit, you know, six weeks. He, again, you're not going to do much with somebody in in six weeks. Um, but I and the medics felt that that was the best place for him. Small unit um, with other detoxing prisoners and, uh, you know, for six weeks. Well, yeah, okay. Because I tell you now, People like Pete Duckerty and other sort of famous people that end up in jail, you know, they're a pain in the ass because everybody wants to see them. They still think that they're outside being famous when actually you're a prisoner with a number. Um, and you know, they're quite hard work to manage. But Pete Duckerty was all right to begin with. He was up on the detox unit. We knew he was signing autographs and God knows what for prisoners. (laughs) Great. Um, But um, then um, I came into work on a Sunday and I think it was the news of the world or it might've been the sun. One of the two um, interesting papers um, had a picture of Pete Doherty um, smoking a joint on the detox unit taken by a prisoner with a mobile phone. And you just think, Oh crap. You know, all you've tried to do is look after this guy. And, you know, that's that's literally, like, just blown all of that out of the water. Because, of course, the public are up in arms. You know, there's prisoners smoking drugs in a jail. There's prisoners on a phone in a jail. You know, there's Pete Doherty in the middle of it all in jail. You know, and you think, oh, God, it's just... That that day, the phone didn't stop ringing. You know, from all and sundry. From, you know, the governor was fuming. Everybody was like, and it was an absolute. And I thought, well, fuck this. So I went up to the detox unit with my um, security manager and said, right, Pete, pack your stuff. You're moving down to the Seg. You can stay down there for the next six weeks. Uh, good order and discipline. Um, down you stay um, until you walk out the gate.
0: Did he go willingly?
1: Yeah, well he weren't gonna put up a fight, was he? You know. I mean he he was many things, but he weren't that that brave, I don't think. Um so he, he muttered a few figs and um we took him down the down the seg. Um and um and that's where he stayed. So nobody could really get to him then, nobody could supply him his drugs, and uh he didn't end up in the in the sun anymore, you know. What about
0: high profile killers?
1: Um, we we did have a, um, a few, but I mean, we had. They were more sort of known locally rather than nationally. I mean, you know, Wormwood Scrubs has had the likes of Dennis Nielsen, uh, you know, Peter Sutcliffe. It's it's had those guys in it. Not since when I was there, obviously, but you know, it's it's had all those those guys. in. we had Charlie Bronson at, at some stage, you know. But the the the, the serial killers and the killers that we had weren't so well known generally as 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 maybe sort of you know the big cat a jails would have had
0: what were your interactions with charlie bronson
1: oh i i didn't he wasn't there when i was there thankfully
0: so over your career then because you started when was it 86. I was in 86 did you see a rise of the drug gangs
1: Yes, and a different kind of prisoner. Mm. You know what I call like um, like an old con. I mean, I don't use the word convict. I don't use the word um, inmate. I use the word prisoner. But what I call a, you know, an old lag, like your your sort of Ronnie Barker sort of, you know, prisoners type. Kind of went out, out, out the, out the door and, and in came like the gangs and the, um, you know, the, the, the very sort of the serious drug gangs, serious traffickers, um, you know, th- those sorts of, of, of people who, who, and the age seemed to come down. So there were younger people in jail. We had also at one point. I think Scrubs had something like eighty-five percent foreign national prisoners. So we had a, because we covered Heathrow Airport. We had an awful lot of people coming over here, bringing trying to bring drugs in that obviously went straight to Wormwood Scrubs. So definitely the rise of drugs because a, a prison is, is a mirror of society.
0: Did you see the growth of the Muslim prison population?
1: Without a doubt, to a point where um i mean the muslim faith is is the highest or the quickest growing faith in the world i think um and it certainly was at scrubs i mean at one point we had to split the muslim service because it was just far too large to have um all the muslim prisoners in one place at one time it was impossible to to manage Um, So we split it into two. I mean, I don't know what it is now, whether they've even had to split it even further. So half would use the gym and half would use the the C of E church.
0: So did you ever see drug gang rivalries roll over into the prison system with inmates or were there even riots where gangs were going at each other?
1: Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt, gangs, gangs were, um, because obviously West London. So there was the West London gang. There was, um, QPR fans. Then there was the Chelsea headhunters that we had in some of them. You know, there were all these sorts of, um, leftish, rightish, you know, very difficult to manage, but you have to manage them as, as, as easily and as, um, safely as you possibly can and I think that's that is the the key to it is is how do you do that so did you have to keep them separate um not like we had to keep the IRAs separate but we did have to monitor them for
0: definite were the moments where they got access and it all kicked off
1: um well in the main they both sort of relatively got on but I say got on with sort of like tongue-in-cheek I mean they they put up with each other you know but it wouldn't it often wouldn't take much for it all to spark up usually on the exercise yard in the middle where it was surrounded by other people so you had like very very difficult for staff to get through a lot of prisoners at a time. But yeah, and, and and also, you know, big gatherings of prisoners, whether there's, you know, uh, Muslim service or C of E service. At one stage, like anybody of any religion could go to a C of E service, but we stopped that and it then had to be, if you were C of E, you went to C of E. If you were RC, you went to RC. If you wanted to change religion, we'll crack on. You apply... In the normal way. So,
0: what was the worst prisoner-on-prisoner prisoner violence you encountered?
1: Prisoner-on-prisoner uh, prisoner was probably, um, oh dear. I mean, i've I've seen I've seen lots of slashings, stabbings. Um, somebody got hit on the head with a HP sauce bottle. Um, I saw somebody get. Um, they sell, um, or they did. I don't know whether they still do. Tins of tuna. And, um, you know, if you, with a tin opener, take the top of a can off, you've got a serrated edge. I've seen somebody get cut from there round to about Ooh. there. Um, I saw um, in a course like with, with um, you know, anything can be used as a weapon. You know, you say, well, why did they have tuna? But you know you can you can sharpen anything from a plastic spoon. You know you can sharpen the end to a point and make a make a like a dagger with it or shank
0: or whatever. What about juggings?
1: Juggings? What's what's a juggling? Boiling juggie? the water, the sugar uh, in the, it. The, the, yeah. the The worst thing is is um boiling water with sugar. That's that's the worst thing, because, of course, the 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 boiling water, obviously, and then the sugar melts, doesn't it? And sticks to the skin. Mm. So that's the worst thing. I've seen I've seen a prisoner with all down like one side and, and his shoulder with all with all of that. Oh. Yeah, it's it's very painful. It's I hard mean, burns to treat. are. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, burns are painful. I mean, they usually end up in hospital having skin grafts and God knows what. But um, yeah, I mean, anything like that is is incredibly painful.
0: So towards the end of your career, then, and this was the kind of a changeover in prison philosophy. David Cameron comes in, does not he? old pomp and circumstance, <laughs> but brings his guys with the calculators.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, David Cameron um wanted to launch some new prison initiative. And this is the thing with politics and prisons, where, you know, each new prisons minister thinks he's got the solution. Mm. He thinks that he's thought of something that you've done five years ago. It didn't work then and it won't work now. And you're on this continuous roundabout and um, they brought in um, these people to look at money saving because it was always, always about saving money. And, um, you know, that's understandable. It's a public service. It's public money. And um, But um, in this instance, I think they went too far. I mean, I I managed probably five, or 500 staff and a, probably half of Wormwood Scrubs, I managed visits, reception, the dogs, security, intel, vis- um, the gates, the communications room. So I had a, a big remit. And they literally just stripped it all away um, and gave it to people who um, were not as senior as me, not rank-wise as high as I was. Um, and, you know, I, I prided myself on on ensuring that Wilmwood Scrubs was one of the best jails in the country, that it was looked at as a safe jail. There were very few instances of bullying or violence or assaults on staff or prisoner on prisoner. Our drug, uh, our mandatory drug testing was one of the lowest in the country for a Category B jail. You know, but these are all things that, you know, we, things that we put in place to, to tackle all of this. And, um, you know, I could see all of that just being slowly stripped away and, you know, they brought out this uh, thing called VEDS, which was um, early retirement for people, officers who had a lot of experience, who cost the department a lot of money because they were on good pensions, uh, myself included in that. Um, And it got to the point where I, I, I could just feel it all slipping away and I thought... If I don't do something, then I'm either going to get myself in bother because I'm going to open my mouth um, probably inappropriately and tell somebody their fortune, or <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to become so disillusioned with it that I'm not going to be able to do my my job properly. So I had a chat with my wife and um, we both decided that I'd take early retirement, which is what I did. Um, And, you know, I have very mixed feelings about that because um, when I took retirement, you know, anybody who has retired will know this feeling is you lose your sense of purpose. You lose, you know, well, where is my place in society now? And I think I was definitely one of those. I, I didn't. You know, first couple of weeks it's like you're on holiday. It's great, (laughs) you know. But after that, when when all the dust has settled and you know all the patting on the back and congratulations, etc., has died down, it's very difficult to find your way through it all. And I mean that that is one of the reasons why I've finally decided to to do the book because I thought, well. It'll give me something to do. It'll put a lot of things to bed that I know are still floating around in my head. Um, and um, I thought, well, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do that. But it was a very difficult decision and one uh, I didn't take lightly.
0: Did you miss the excitement?
1: Oh, I missed everything. <laughs> I missed getting up in the morning. I missed, you know... Rolling in, in work, knowing everybody, knowing exactly what I was doing for the day, know the banter, you know, m- seeing prisoners, you know, I missed everything.
0: You got, there's a certain gallows humor, isn't there? Inside. Oh,
1: completely. But any, I think, you know, it's not just prisons, it's police. You know, people, people who work in jobs like that, they see things on a daily basis that many people don't see in a lifetime and i think you've got to have some way to deal with that and whether that's a gallows humor then or not you know that is each individual's way of dealing with it but yeah i mean you know i've i've seen it many times and i've been part of it many times
0: and you said that these young staff cost much less but then it makes it a more dangerous environment the more manipulable yeah. by the prisoners what what do you say to young staff who are going to be watching this video what advice would you give them um
1: what advice <laughs> don't do it no <laughs> no i you know it it can be a great career when i joined the prison service it was a career and i looked at it as a career for life nowadays you know the turnover of staff is so high um it's 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 a shame really, because it can be a very rewarding job. You know, and if you help one prisoner to to sort himself out or herself out and and, you know, go on to lead a useful and law-abiding life, then you've done a good job. And I think that was the worthwhile part of of the job. It can be very, very rewarding. It can also be a pain in the ass, but what job can't, you know. And I think if you remember That there is always that line, just don't cross that line.
0: You had a warning for them about helping prisoners bring in Chinese takeaways.
1: Oh, the well, yeah. Well, it was, it was, um, we had um, an Indian officer on my wing, and every lunchtime, every morning, his mother would pack him up, um, a fabulous vegetable curry and um, paratha, all homemade. It was beautiful, and he used to share it with all the staff. Um, And then he started sharing it with a prisoner. Just the prisoners just smelt it because it was very good. Um, And and he just started sharing it with the prisoner. And then this prisoner said to him once, oh, gov, I've I've run out of shampoo um, and I was too late to get canteen. You ain't got a spare thing of shampoo from the gym you could lend me. And he gave him a thing of shampoo. And then it was... He was expecting the curry at lunchtime. Where's my curry, Gov? Where's my curry? Um, And then it was, um, oh, Gov, can you send this letter out? I've missed the post today. And so this officer just complied because he didn't see that he was just being very slowly reeled in. And then it got to one time where the prisoner turned around to him and said, Gov, before you come in today... You're going to meet me mate in the car park. He's going to put something in the curry that I want you to bring in to me. And uh, he said, well, I don't, I'm i not going to do that. And the prisoner said, well, I'll tell everybody that, you know, you've given me curry. You've sent out mail for me. You know, you've, you've brought me things in because I couldn't get to the canteen. I'll tell everybody. Well, where is he to go? He can't now come to me and say, you know, he's been asked to do this because he's done this, that, and the other. So he complied and he brought drugs in and he was caught.
0: How was he caught?
1: He was caught via the drug dog. Mm. Again. Monty. Monty. Yeah. Good old Monty. Bless him. He's dead now, bro. Oh. but, But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, and that's how it starts. It starts very slowly, very small little things. But two things. Prisoners have time on their hands to think of how to reel you in where you're looking different from everybody else, where your uniform, you know, you wear your keys hanging out when they should be hidden away or you've got a dog chain for a key. Um, keychain and not a proper keychain that snaps. If you get strangled by, you know, all these slight little things prisoners look for, and they look to to pick up and manipulate you into into doing what they want to do. And you know, it's not just it's not just prison officers; it's all staff who work work in um, prisons of all grades. I've seen governor grades being manipulated by prisoners. So you know, it's it's not just those that are on the on the landing at all.
0: And I urge people to check out The Governor. I listened to the audiobook in a matter of days. Vanessa's narrated it herself, which is not an easy feat, but she's a natural. And each chapter, it just flows at such such a fast pace to it. And you're really rooting for Vanessa as she overcomes all of these challenges and just stays and adheres to her value system and at the end it's kind of sad when cameron comes in you know obviously he wants to be tough on crime get the votes we're going to improve this improve that all the usual nonsense that the politicians lie to us with to get their votes but behind the scenes then all the experienced staff are laid off and cut back and then these young staff come in who are vulnerable to you know getting manipulated and, and that was definitely a good time to bow out there wasn't it the top of your yeah i and, think so i yeah. think so is there anything you'd like to say to, in conclusion then to the people who've been watching this for the last two and a half hours with you <laughs> <laughs>
1: um two things the first thing is it's okay not to be okay and if you're struggling then speak to somebody and the second thing is stay safe
0: So the links for Vanessa's book are in the description box below this video. And the socials are down there as well. So please go and support her on Instagram and Twitter. You can reach out and comment and message down there as well. Huge thank you for watching this. Let us know in the comments what you thought. And most importantly, huge thank you for you for sharing your story so charismatically. Well done. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you. Cheers. Congratulations to our podcast, John Sutton, whose book, HMP Manchester Prison Officer, is now available worldwide. We've done a podcast with John and what he went through with the Freemason prison officers working against him, putting his life on the line, is mind-boggling. So the subtitle is, I Survived Terrorist, Murderers, Rapists and Freemason Officer Attacks in Strange Ways and Wormwood Scrubs. John G. Sutton.
2: So this book includes drugs, riot shanks, dirty protests, violent Freemason guards, self-mutilation and suicides. Welcome to the brutal truth about life as a prison officer. So with a career spanning 10 years inside of the walls of Britain's most infamous prisons, Manchester strageways and London's Wormwood Scrubs, John Sutton has experienced it all attacked by the Soho vampire and insane killer, assaulted by the Cambridge rapist, threatened by the IRA, beaten, persecuted and prosecuted by Freemason officers. John Sutton survived to reveal the heart-hitting truth in his jaw-dropping memoir.
0: From the get-go, he just takes you right inside into a conflict and you just cannot put the book down all the way through. If you've ever wondered what a career in the prison service is really like, then this searingly honest account will take you onto the landings housing Britain's most dangerous prisoners. Accompany John as he carries the keys that lock up murderers, rapists, gangsters, paedophiles, terrorists, addicts and the mentally ill. As well as the ever-present threat from the inmates, John had to endure a conspiracy of violence from his own colleagues who were Freemasons. Nothing can be more dangerous in prison than the staff not having your back. Horrifying, harrowing, and humorous, John's book will take you on an unforgettable journey into a netherworld of drugs, violence, and hostile Freemasons. It's even got the Masonic compass symbol on the cover. So check it out, available worldwide. John Sutton's book, HMP Manchester Prison Officer. It's an ebook, paperback, and audio book. I kill you!
2: I, uh, yeah! A knife and a cushion and all that like. Yeah! And he's looking at me, and we went wide. Dave's gone like.
0: <laughs> what is it about a tough guy that fascinates us? Imagine I'm hearing that. I'm thinking I'm not going down today. If I go down today, uh, I'm dead. We're bringing you the very best of our interviews with Britain's hardest men. They made the mistake of bringing. Billy Cubs, iron bars and knives to a gunfight. No Rules Fighter Bash, Stephen the Devil French, and my best friend, Wild Man. Over two hours of terrifying tales of punch-ups, stabbings. That's what happens in that world. You, you leave people long enough, they get enough rope to themselves. Attempted murders and exceptional all-round hardness.